On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey there, Ben Kissel here for Last Podcast Network. I want to tell you about my show, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. For more than nine years, Marcus and I have strived to present you with the most accurate and honest political podcast out there. In these turbulent times, it's our intention to unite the country with impassioned debate that reaches out to the rational Americans who find their voices more muffled every day. Every week, I use my political science background, my experience running for office, along with my lifelong passion to stand up for the downtrodden, the wrongfully accused, and the invisible man and woman to bring you news like you haven't heard before. Let's face it, traditional news has failed us. We promise to always tell you the truth the best we see it, and I personally guarantee to not be swayed by hyper-partisanship, but be guided by facts. To listen, search Abe Lincoln's Top Hat on any podcast platform or go to lastpodcastnetwork.com and find it under shows. Hail yourselves, everyone. Now back to Last Podcast on the left. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast on the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. Are we going to do the congratulations? I think we are. All right. Well, I want to say last weekend we had the honor and the privilege to go to Henry Zabrowski and Natalie Jean's wedding. I think the official name is now Henry and Natalie Zabrowski. Ah, so I want to legally. say legally, legally. <laughs> I can't believe someone took your last name. You're a very lucky man. Congratulations for me, Marcus, the whole LPN family and our fans across the world. Congratulations, buddy. You nailed it. And the wedding could not have been more perfect. That is incredibly nice of you to say. Thank you. Hail Satan. Thank you for the support that everyone's mm-hmm. given me, all the listeners. I've got a lot of nice messages. It's been really wonderful. I will say there is nothing as I'm going to use the term boner killing as <laughs> reading about West Memphis 3. Reading Devil's Not at a Pool. Yes, well, why did you do this on your honeymoon? We got work to do. We got oh a whole show to do. And so I'm sitting there reading it. It's just like miscarriages of justice. I'm yelling at the book. Nat's there with her margarita and like sunglasses yeah. on being like, are you yelling at space again? I was like, you married. <laughs> and then a DJ is like, we're celebrating a honeymoon. Could Henry and Natalie Zabrowski come to the dance floor? Miscarriage of justice. Okay, they can actually stay where they are uh but no i i did all this partially did this to help own halloween and that's kind of what i want to do is be being a part of it now october we can we can have a flagrante of celebration oh my goodness absolutely welcome to the last podcast on the left everyone i am ben kissel with marcus parks hello and we have the recently married mr henry zabrowski yeah man can you hear that you hear those clomps? Uh-huh. S- stallions in the stable. Ah, I see. <laughs> What's he going to do now, man? But guess what, man? I still get at the grass every uh, once in a while. I, Stick I my head through the fence. I don't know what any of that means, but I like it. All right. We are on to part three of the West Memphis Three, and this is going to be uh, its going to be difficult to listen to, as, as Henry alluded to, when it comes to miscarriage of justice. Yes, this is the conclusion. This is when this entire trial wraps up. So when you're out there celebrating at Halloween parties and trick-or-treating with your children, right. 
right. <laughs> some people are not. Some people are on death row. Did that ruin your time? Honestly, I think about it far too much because all I do is listen to Johnny Cash speak, sing, uh-huh. and it's usually about people on death row, and then this story combined with that. Uh, that's all I think about. So as far as Jesse Miss Kelly's attorney, Dan Stidham, was concerned, the largest battle of Jesse's trial was lost before the trial even began. Mm. See, Stidham had done his damnedest to keep Jesse's confession out of court, but he had failed miserably. See, as far as Dan Stidham knew, that confession was the only piece of evidence that the prosecution had on his client. And for the most part, Dan was right. But concerning hearsay and bullshit... The prosecution came loaded. They had wagon loads of hearsay and bullshit. Yes, it's never good when your defense attorney looks at you at the end of a trial and says, well, did my damnedest. <laughs> uh, that, that doesn't mean, it doesn't yeah. tend to mean that you're walking home that night. When you're, yeah, when your defense attorney says, well, we sullied it. We landed her in the harbor. <laughs> then you're like, oh, well, the harbor is just life sentence without parole. Yeah. 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 Landed. Blame the geese. <laughs> See, even though the cops had the confession, what they didn't have was an actual motive for Jesse being present at the murders. Jesse said his part wasn't running and grabbing one of the boys, but he never said why he was there in the first place. Mm. So, in order to wrap up motive, prosecuting attorney John Fogelman brought in Arkansas's best secret agent waitress, Vicki Hutchison. Great. They call me a regular mata whore. Yeah. <laughs> you know what that means. Yeah. I'll tell you what, cigarettes make sure I don't fill out these jean shorts. <laughs> hey, all right, not bad. You know, your Vicki Hutchison is uh, suspiciously close to your Manson. Hey, you know... What can you do? Every every artist has one story to tell. Right, right. I think you just have the same voice for everyone with a flat butt. Yes, yes. It's interesting. It's an interesting acting approach. It's true. It's true. And Vicki Hutchinson coming in as if... Just leading the cops to Jesse wasn't bad enough. She took the stand at his trial and danced on his grave. Ugh. Vicky gave testimony on the Esbot about how Damien had picked her up with Jesse in the back seat, how they'd gone to a place where there were 10 or as many as 15 people, and then she left, leaving Jesse behind. And that was it for Vicky. I actually read the transcript of her testimony, and it must have taken about, I don't know, five minutes for both her testimony and the cross-examination. All the prosecution had to do to scare this jury was mention Damien, allude to witchcraft, mm-hmm. and say a goofy word that they didn't know. Esbot! Actually, that's also how Sephora sells a lot of their a lot of their stuff. Because <laughs> yeah. I go there with Natalie, and all you needed to do was get a woman on there that looked like that kind of very intense Lord makeup that's now happening. Oh, yeah. with like kind of that arcane, sort of like future clown, as the only way I would put it, but like sexy. And then she'd be like, this is bot mask. Will surely peel the, re- the years off of your brows. And all of the juries, with the women on the jury, would have been like, oh. Oh, <laughs> well, as far as actual forensics went, it had everything to do with Damien and Jason and absolutely nothing to do with Jesse. Mm. Microscopic fibers have been found on the victim's clothes that were, quote unquote, microscopically similar to items found in Damien and Jason's house. And remember, this is Jesse's trial. The one at Damien's house 
was a green polyester blouse, while the one that matched to Jason was from a red lady's bathrobe. Hmm. So unless these boys committed a triple murder wearing their mother's clothes, it didn't make much sense to bring this into trial. How terrifying would that have been? Yeah. If it was just <laughs> Damien with the, the polyester blouse on, being like, you never do the dishes on time, Damien. Smash. <laughs> oh. You never take the trash out when I ask, Damien. Smash. <laughs> like fucking psycho. Yes, like that creepy character from that Snickers commercial where all the boys are dressed up like the older woman. Have Ugh. you seen that commercial? No. It's truly traumatizing. <laughs> I'm not sure how it got past the Snickers censors. <laughs> we spent some time at the Dali Museum this weekend, and one thing that's very interesting is that you could see the direct line from Salvador Lee's commercial approach to surrealism and how it leads to modern-day commercial advertisements. No mm. kidding. Yeah. Skittles. Huh. Old Spice. See? I love it. Honestly... <laughs> Marshawn Lynch made Skittles amazing for everyone, so I always like them. About the fibers, the prosecution screamed secondary transfer, meaning the fibers had gone from the blouse and robe to Damien and Jason, then finally to the clothes of the victims, which is a pretty intense fucking journey. Okay. But it can happen. It can happen. But besides just that, microscopically similar means just that. Similar. These fibers weren't even close to a perfect match. All this means was that all these families bought blouses and bathrobes from the same Walmart. Right. And they only had one Walmart. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I don't Honestly, even think this town had a Walmart. I think we're was, talking... Yeah, it was right across the bridge from actual Memphis. That's why it's called Me West Memphis, is because it's right across the bridge from Memphis, Tennessee. And so it they had like, the Walmart in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, but, oh, the, yeah, okay. but, yeah, but, but I'm sure they had a super Walmart. Oh, it's I like, don't think Super Walmarts are even around. That we can't really. We can't talk. About <laughs> I don't know. We don't know for certain. But it's like the way they marketed Bushwick as East Williamsburg and yes. sent all of us deep, deep into Brooklyn. <laughs> well, anyways, the fibers they didn't even need to come from the same items. Those kinds of fibers were used in a thousand different pieces of clothing. Mm -hmm. But the most glaring thing here is neither the green nor the red fibers. The most glaring thing here is that none of this had anything to do with Jesse. This is all about Damien and Jason, and yet it is being used in Jesse's trial because of the confession. Right. Because they had nothing whatsoever on Jesse himself. And again, as we went into on the last episode, watch the footage of the confession, listen to it. They led him down the entire path. They created well, the story for him. So when we say confession, put, put those little uh, air quotes yeah. over it. It's mostly if you read The Devil's Knot, because if you listen to the recorded testimony, it is the 30-some-odd 30, 30 minutes of after they had drilled him for hours. So when you hear him, he has a, a stumbly story put together, but you don't hear the five other confessions that he'd done around that first major confession, that you see him change details. You don't, we don't see the pre uh, convention. We don't see right. all of that talk. The hours of them piecing the story together with him, essentially leading him on. And this may be edited out or maybe not edited out, but can you say grilled instead of drilled him for hours? Because uh, I was just, I, it really took me to a place that I didn't want to go to. No, it's because grilled, you, grilled. I tell you what, because if you go stumbling around in some of these like hotel on demand stuff, never click on the never click on the title Jesse's Confession. No. <laughs> because it is graphic. All right, Mike, I did this. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Fogelman's last planned witness was going to be yet another Damien-centric testimony, but it didn't pan out because it was found out once again that the witness had been 100% lying. Ugh. 
Before the trial, a teenager named William Jones had told his mother that Damien had gotten drunk after the murders and had bragged that he'd raped the three boys and killed them with a knife. I tell you what, you don't brag about that. You brag about catching a four-foot bass. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not surprisingly, the mother bundled him up in their car, drove him straight to the police station, and made him film a statement. Thing was, though... William was just trying to sound cool in front of his mom. Mm. Also, 35K hung over all of these people's heads. It's still that money driving them because these, these poor people, it's, they're, they're in desperate shape. Yeah. So, they, I mean, like, I feel like that's a factor that's, like, looked over quite a bit where it's just being like, that money is like a gigantic telltale heart. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, Damien hadn't told this kid anything, and by the time William had gotten to the station, he didn't want to fess up to his mom that he was lying, so he just went along with it. And he kept up the facade until it was just about time for him to testify before he finally admitted to lying. He didn't want to get in trouble. He didn't want to get in trouble. That's, That's all it was. So, the last person the prosecution brought to the stand was local witch hunter Jerry Driver. (laughs) There for the sole purpose of saying he'd seen the boys walking around together a couple of times. You know, he shows up looking like Max von Sydow from The Exorcist (laughs) with his full (laughs) demon hunter regalia and a crossbow anointed with holy water and being like, does anybody need holy water? I have extra here in these high sea packets. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely picture a Van Helsing-like character for sure. Well, Driver said that he had first seen the three of them walking around together, quote-unquote, around November 15th, 1992, and that they were all wearing long black coats and carrying, quote-unquote, staffs. Wonderful. Walking sticks. Yeah, walking sticks. But, uh, he, but he made sure in the testimony to say staffs ooh. to make sure to give it that extra little occult edge. You know, did anyone ever stop to ask, why are you, like, uh, stalking three teenage boys like <laughs> it seems to me like he's the real creepy one here mm-hmm. well yes well no he was working under the name of jesus christ oh. the almighty power of our lord he had this jurisdiction to go anywhere Appar- except backstage at disney world that shit is very very tight well you learned that on your honeymoon and apparently jesus christ loves Ario speedwagon because i can imagine he blasted a lot of that while hunting these children Oh, my God, him just doing, uh, not Roll With The Changes. Who's did Roll With The Changes? That's a good song, too, though. <laughs> who did Roll With The Changes? I can't remember who did Roll With The Changes. Was that Eagles? That's Eagles, Are right? we having another old man corner? <laughs> but, good. yeah, because, oh, man, these kids are just walking around. And he's, man, it, ah, I could just see how proud he is of oh, himself totally. in court, like, sauntering in. Yeah, and then he said that he had seen them together, quote-unquote, after that but didn't elaborate any further. His testimony was also ridiculously short, in and out. So he saw them walking, and then he saw them after that. Yeah. That's the testimony? He saw them walking together with staffs. Uh Don't forget, they were all wearing black. They were all wearing long black coats. They had staffs, and then he saw them again after that. Okay. You know, if you listen to our necromancy episode, staffs are easy to acquire. (laughs) Sure. You go to then, at the time, Spencer's. Was like you could go to. They had that station at every poor poor mall. 
Yeah. At least had one, maybe two Spencers. Oh, my gosh. I was just up at a Spencers recently in Illinois, and uh, it's incredible. Yeah. I think I mentioned that already. Though. I don't think you did. You, I did You didn't mention that? that you went to Spencers I went to Illinois. Spencers Gifts, and they still have that naughty section in the Ooh. way, way back. And they still got the same shirts, the Marilyn Manson shirts, Snoop Dogg shirts. It was like being in the 1990s. I, I just felt right at home. Is that your idea of romance with Brooke, where you sit and you just press the little ball and you make the big fat man's pants fall down? <laughs> And you look at shot glasses uh, that say, I might be over 40, but I'm still flirty. (laughs) So along with the confession, what I just said, that's all the prosecution had. All the stuff that we just mentioned, that's all the prosecution had. And again, this is Jesse's trial. This is Jesse's trial, yeah. And as far as what the defense had, the cards were stacked against them before the trial even began. I mean, first of all, these guys were in way over their heads, and they absolutely admit to that. They were young, inexperienced, on a national stage, Mm. and as we said, stymied by the judge at every turn. Yeah, I have a really hard time understanding the judge's, uh, where he's coming from. I don't know, I don't really understand his perspective. The Devil's Knot plays it out a little bit, but it seemed like he got a pretty intense hard-on for Damien Eccles early. And I must they don't really directly, there's no quotes from him, but is it all just because of his behavior, because of the way that he acted towards the victim's family and the way that he acted in court? And he's I, a hyper-religious guy, I mean, which is so common, that completely corrupts the entire justice system. He's one of the most biased judges. He's like Roy Moore demanding the Ten Commandments be uh, allowed in the courtroom still. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it does have a lot to do with him just, you know, looking at Damien and sa- saying, that kid needs to die. Yeah. Or, or that kid needs to go away forever. Whatever I can do to help put these kids away, I'm going to do it. Right. Uh, just for example, like let's just talk a little bit about what was allowed and what wasn't allowed in Jesse's trial. So the defense tried bringing in Warren Holmes, who was the guy that pegged all the polygraphs that Durham had taken as total bullshit. Mm. But the jury didn't get to hear him because the judge didn't think that his testimony was pertinent. But it's not up to, is it up to the judge to decide that? Uh, yes. It's absolutely up to the judge to see to decide what the jury gets to hear. I mean, that's part of the whole point of the judge is to decide what the jury gets to hear and what the jury doesn't get to hear. But also you have one side saying the polygraph's the most important thing in the world. And then you have the other side saying it doesn't matter at all. And then all of a sudden you're in a different alleyway of thought of two people yelling about these texts, which is kind of, I guess, what legal teams want. They want everybody lost in the fucking details. But it seems like no one gave a shit about the polygraph tests. They just glad that they were just happy they heard a confession. Yeah, you kind of need that. So you have a prosecution and a defense. Yeah. You know? And the same thing happened with an expert on false confessions. Because Stidham, he could say that Jesse's confession was coerced, but he couldn't get an expert to support that conclusion because that would require psychology. And if you'll remember, Judge David Burnett didn't believe psychology had any place in the courtroom. <sighs> yeah, and it certainly has no place in relationships either. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, Stidham and his partner Crow had nothing besides a few alibi stories that the prosecution quickly tore apart because there was no concrete proof that Jesse was where Jesse's defenders said he was. I will say in defense of Crow, he's great on Mystery Science 3000. <laughs> really funny guy. One of the better gumball machine actors out there. That's Tom yes. Servo. Whatever. <laughs> God damn it, Kissel. You know Crow has like a show on this network, right? I know, of 
course I know. We're in trouble all the time. Horrible owner. I'm a bad business owner. (laughs) Movie sign with the Mads. Go check it out. (laughs) Do I need to start taking pictures of where I am like five times a day and just setting them in a big mass text to like prove that I am at places? I think that's what Instagram is for. So I I think you're all right. Uh, Instagram. I never thought of it as an alibi machine. Of course it is. (laughs) Wow, that's a great idea. It should have been called alibi machine. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text and that helps you save time i know i'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics now part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents accounts now so what i've done to do is like so while i'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse picks over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. You know what? That what Stedham and uh, Crow were able to put forward, what little they were able to put forward. I mean, when the verdict came after only a day of deliberations, the only person surprised here was Jesse Miss Kelly. Yeah, oh. he was found guilty of the first degree murder of Michael Moore and guilty of second degree murder in the cases of Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers. Mm. Jesse was sentenced to life in prison without parole, along with an extra 40 years for the two second degree murder verdicts. And it was a first degree for Michael Moore because that's the kid he confessed that he brought back. Yes, that's the kid that he brought back because Jesse never said that he killed any of the kids. But because he went and brought the Michael Moore back, that's why you get a first degree murder charge on that one. Right. And this is when you really saw the first vitriol from the Byers family uh, in the documentary mm. where you see poor, his, the Mrs. Byers, her hatred must have been, I mean, what a haunted looking woman. And then Mark Byers, who ends up being the whole center of the second Paradise right. Lost documentary, his like pontificating was 
was pretty rough. It yeah. was, and it was it was a little theatrical and slightly over the top. Makes you think the director may have prompted a little bit of that activity. Yeah, but you can only yeah. imagine that their hatred for him is matched by their grief. So I feel yeah. so ba- I have so much sympathy oh, for the family. Up. I mean, they're they must have been obviously devastated. And as Jesse Miss Kelly was being taken from court to prison, little switch just flipped in his brain, and he confessed yet again using a brand new story. <sighs> All to the cops who were driving him there. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why Jesse confessed yet again. Personally, I think it's because someone pretty much immediately told him after the verdict that if he testified against Jason and Damien, then his sentence would be reduced, which is true because Mm. Burnett had said, like, I'm not going to pass down final judgment until Damien and Jason's trial begins. Mm. It was all set up for this. It was all set up to get him to flip because they needed him to flip in order to Mm -hmm. have anything on Damien and Jason. It's not an accident that they took someone who did have uh, some issues mentally and they isolated him in his own trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and going into the verdict, like like I said, like Jesse was surprised. He thought that he was going to be all right because all they had was the confession and Jesse knew that the confession was a lie. So he's like, yeah, I'm, that, that's all they got. Like when the prosecution <sighs> rested, he's like, oh, shit, that's all they got. All right, I'm, shit, I'll be out of here. Let's wrap this thing up. Right. And also, if you'll remember, like... Jesse never did have too tight of a grasp on the who's who of the criminal justice system. He didn't no. even know what a lawyer was. Right, right, no, right. No, he didn't have a lot of grasp on a lot of shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I think he's a sweet boy. Yeah. If scrappy and, like, he was a hardcore dude, but he got a short man's attitude, but there was no reason... Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that that's a massive red flag that probably should have stopped the trial right away when he does, doesn't know what a lawyer is. Yeah. Uh, I, oh. I mean, that, I thought this you were going to say it was because he was five foot two. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I think after the verdict, Jesse talked to the first law enforcement officials he was alone with, and those were the cops who were driving him to prison. And I think he hoped that the faster he talked, the faster this whole nightmare would be over and he could finally go home just like the cops had told him the night he was arrested. Right. But his story kept getting more badass every single time he told it. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, of course, like this new confession completely different story from any of the ones that have come before and again this one was rife with misinformation and inconsistencies Mm. this new confession said that jesse had been drinking a bottle of evan williams bought by vicky hutchison when he ran into damien and jason evil evan make you do dastardly things (laughs) evan williams as far as the cheaper whiskeys go it's one of the better ones it really is weird Weird that you think that i don't think that's it's a terrible whiskey oh my there's much canadian miss yeah i'm on ben's side canadian Canadian miss is the worst (laughs) my goodness and so after the three boys met up they smoked a couple of joints to the dome and proceeded to get drunk in robin hood hills hell yeah it's how the devil plays (laughs) (laughs) and after getting a good buzz they saw the three little boys off in the distance and decided to mess around with them a little bit so damien took the lead popped out from behind a tree and grabbed michael and when the other two boys attacked damien jason and jesse jumped out and started beating the boys with sticks until they were unconscious and then things got out of hand jesse said damien and jason took turns raping the boys then Jason castrated Byers with a locking knife, which, of course, sent blood gushing everywhere. After that, Jesse said he left with his whiskey bottle and broke it in disgust on a cement slope near a highway overpass on his way home. 
That's his second story. Right, so that's his second story. I tell you what, that's where they should have had him right there. They know there's no way a 16-year-old would have smashed an entire handle of Evan <laughs> oh, Williams. Absolutely. If you got a hold of that. Um, but honestly, again, yeah. we'll, we'll get deeper into mm. the occult testimony and all of the bullshit they try to just surround Satan with and the idea of magic ritual. None of this has anything to do with magic ritual. But. No. And of course, he's just going so over the top that it's got to be real yes. in the minds of the prosecution. Wait, he did this there's there's a couple of things here um i he made it he had to be he had to put himself at the scene yeah because right. the other stories he would say up to a point and then he said and then i ran home and i ran home immediately because he kept trying Wait. to get himself out of it by like he setting him up perot <laughs> He's just he's got a very high voice and he's yeah, he does. but he's like and I saw them getting boys and I, and I ran home as soon as I could and he did that again and again until finally he knew he had to say he saw the whole thing and say that they did it he had nothing to do with it and uh, that's so it ramped up right mm-hmm. so following this confession Dan Stidham ran and told prosecuting attorney John Fogelman all about it. So Fogelman went down to the overpass in question. Lo and behold, he found a broken Eva Williams bottle. Whoa, oh. by the, t- the place where all the truckers hang out? No way. <laughs> That's crazy. That would never be there. Let's see. What do we got here? We got some uh, We got some water bottles full of piss. Uh, well, more of those. We got some empty Snickers wrappers, uh, broken Evan Williams bottle. What was that last one? <laughs> now, to the guilters, the fact that Fogelman found a broken whiskey bottle underneath an overpass near one of the busiest interstates in America is proof positive that this was the real confession of Jesse Miss Kelly. I was just snooping around this ashtray, and I saw so many cigarette butts. <laughs> cigarette butts cigarette in an butts. ashtray. In sand, Put this like it was a man in a death row chair. <laughs> but even if we set aside the fact that they're so excited about an old broken bottle of cheap whiskey underneath an overpass in Arkansas, let's take a look at some of the other problems with the story. First, the knife doesn't match the prosecution story. If Byers was castrated by a locking knife, as Jesse just said, then the knife found in the lake couldn't have been the weapon used, because that was a combat knife. Mm -hmm. Second, there was almost no blood at the murder scene, which goes against what Jesse said. Mm -hmm. In fact, the boys didn't even have mosquito bites, despite the fact that the woods were so thick with mosquitoes the night of the murder that the search had to be called off. Mm. And what's interesting... Is that? But I will say it's interesting. There, there was no trails in and out to drop them off. This is a part of the weird area where piecing together these murders are impossible. There are gaps in information that, like, all of this is going to be conjecture from either side. We have no clue how the hell they got there. It doesn't seem like they were murdered there. If we were going to really believe that they were castrated and they were cut up with knives and they were tortured, you'd think that there would be some remnants of it and then right. that the cleaning then would also be obvious, which it wasn't. Right. And I have to say this about mosquitoes. There's only one defense for mosquitoes. Do you know what it is? Dying. No. They protect the rainforest. <laughs> ah. Because uh, oh. you can't inhabit it because it's so f- – oh, parts of it because it's so filled with mosquitoes. Huh. So in a way, they do some good stuff. <laughs> one good thing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Very we'll ta- fern gully of you. <laughs> yes. We'll talk about mosquitoes a little bit later on in this episode also. And third, and this is probably the most important part, the boys had not been raped in any way whatsoever – Now, I'm terribly sorry for going into this, but when a person dies, 
the normal muscle tension in a body relaxes, and that goes for the anus as well. Don't ask him how he knows. I, I don't want to look at. I don't want to look at the books. I don't want to see your websites. I don't want to find out from Carolina. I don't want to know. Can we just plow through this information, please? Sure. I mean. <laughs> Everyone's anus dilates when they die. That's I love a- that kid's book. <laughs> I love it. I don't. Can we just. My goodness. Well, it's just a fact. That's a cold fact of death. That just happens. Right. Most of us shit ourselves when we die. <sighs> then when you add damage from being submerged in water for up to 18 hours, things start looking pretty gnarly back there. Oof. And even though the supposed rape of the boys became a central part of the narrative, Nobody, not even the incompetent medical examiner, saw any evidence of rape whatsoever. Mm. And when Jesse was confronted with this, he said, oh, yeah, they's going to do it. But then they didn't. <sighs> OK, oh. I will say this when you when you poop yourself after death, I'm going to call that my final joke. <laughs> and I'm just going to have yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to die just, with a smile just, on like, my face. Your thumb just slowly <laughs> shooting up into a thumbs up and uh. like. <laughs> the last, last noises you make. And the thing was, the prosecution was completely ready to take this new story to Damien and Jason's trial. And Jesse was ready to go, too, because as far as he was concerned, it wasn't just his life on the line here. The authorities had been telling him that if he didn't testify against Jason and Damien, they were going to get set loose. And if they got out, the first person they would visit would be Jesse's girlfriend, Susie, and they were going to get her. God, it's so corrupt. But what convinced Jesse to stay quiet wasn't any sort of threat at all. It was actually his father. And this is actually, I mean, a little hokey. Okay. Jesse Miss Kelly Sr. told his son that if he lied, he'd have to live with that for the rest of his life. But if he told the truth, if he ever did get out, his name would be clear and he could live a decent, honest life. Okay. So... The day before Jason and Damien's trial was set to begin, Jesse Miss Kelly withdrew his agreement to testify, and he told the man to fuck off. All right. But that didn't mean the prosecution didn't have anything at all on Damien and Jason. It's just that they had very little. Mm-hmm. The confession had already leaked. Yeah. Everybody already knew that it had happened. Right. So this idea that we're going to delete it from these people's minds... We're not Tommy Lee Jones uh, uh, hiding all of the evidences of whatever crimes he's done over the years yep. I don't, and from the machine that they gave him during the filming of Men in Black. <laughs> Men in Black, yes, absolutely. It, and in a small town like this, there's no way you don't get a polluted jury pool. There's yeah. no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the prosecution, they had the aforementioned fibers. They had the people who had seen a muddy Damien the night of the murders. They had the softball confessions. They had a surprise witness. And they had the knife, along with the medical examiner's testimony. And Mr. Bojangles was still in town giving people $5 coupons. (laughs) Really? In order to get a full biscuit meal. It's only biscuits. And at the Mr. Bojangles biscuit meal, it is six biscuits, all held together by cheese. I I love that. For five bucks? Yeah, that sounds amazing. Six biscuits for five bucks? You got a customer for life, sir. I'm moving to West Memphis. I'll see you later. Another got get by Mr. Bojangles. (laughs) And so for the people who are more skeptical i understand uh that softball confession was so stupid so there were a lot of dumb mistakes that, that damien eccles made well that's the thing is that the prosecution's gamble was that the biggest piece of evidence for both damien and jason's guilt was sitting in the courtroom right there with them the entire time they figured as far as the jury was concerned 
they really didn't need much more than just Damien himself. The Devil's Not really spells out how much people did not like Damien. Right. People did not like Damien. He came off really, really badly. It basically mm-hmm. helped organize an entire field of people that with the first things that they had heard that these kids were murdered, the first person they thought of was Damien. Mm-hmm. All of these guys named Damien because they didn't like him. He thought he was better than all of them. He dressed in black even though he only dressed in black because it started because a girl told him he looked good in black. Right. And so now I feel like the same bias is still playing out. I think a lot of the guilters out there who believe that they are guilty, a lot of it is just that you don't like Damien Eccles. Right. And right. you and you want a solution to the problem. You want and, you want the killer to have been caught. And Damien Eccles just looks like the guy that would be delivered to you if you were to make a sim of right. the, the person that <laughs> murdered these boys. And that was by Damien's design. He didn't want to be liked. As yeah. all of us grew up in towns, or not so much you, Henry, but Marcus and I growing up in small towns, you want to get out. Yeah. And the only way that you can get out is if you actively don't like the place. Yeah. So you kind of have to do that to motivate you to go out to New York or wherever you want to move to. Yeah, I you came from the, the city that doesn't sleep, so. Yeah. <laughs> Subways were my teachers. <laughs> Did you get And the streets were my books. <laughs> Honestly, though, You're yes. talking about we, just, we were just in the town where you went to high school. Yeah, real mean streets of St. Pete out there, ain't I they? will well, say. Palm Harbor is, Palm Harbor is different. St. <laughs> Pete's is a nice, sleepy town. Yeah. yeah the worst I saw was like a scabby dude at a fucking star- subway, and that was it. No. Now, high school, that was a different story. The waves were my lovers, uh, and my lovers <laughs> were sea turtles. St. Pete's is actually such a nice town. I'm hanging out with Kevin Barnett from Round Table of Gentlemen. Thanks for everyone who's listening to the backlog on that. Apologies for some things that were said, I'm sure, but people seem to like it. We walk into a bar. Governor, former Governor Charlie Crist is just right there. Amazing. So that just shows you what kind of town St. Pete is. Not exactly a danger zone. <laughs> <laughs> well... During this entire time, between the interval of the re- the arrest and the trial, Damien was not doing well. No. I mean, he tried overdosing on antidepressants, he tried starving himself to death, and he was only sleeping about two hours a night. Mm. And on top of all this, Damien's girlfriend had been pregnant this whole time. Mm-hmm. And she'd given birth right before the trial began. So Damien, he's trying to plan a wedding on top of his murder trial. <laughs> Henry, you that tried to plan a, Henry, you tried <laughs> just, to plan a just wedding. Just saying and, all of that, like, <laughs> I just got like a twitch in my fucking eyebrow. Yeah, you tried to plan a wedding, and what, I mean, all we're working on is a podcast. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine I mean, a murder trial? we have trial? projects in play. Yes, I <laughs> know, but for the sake <laughs> of... stuff it's, going on. Basically, it's no, not as much as a, a death row trial, is yeah. all I'm saying. No, of course not, but also... The the thing is, the directors of Paradise Lost also set up that whole like media brunch where he held the baby and he did all of this. There's many things that kind of also happen in there that they try to like flip it a little bit, try to make things like like cool look Damien's with the kid, but it ended up like horrifying everybody. Yeah. yeah, it's like get that. Instead of saying like, "Oh look, look how sweet he is with the ki- with his child," it's more like, "Get that fucking child away from that monster." Yes, yes. You know, like it didn't. It no, did not it, work it at all. And well, the horrible I mean, thing was is that that was the first time he'd ever held his child. Ugh. Yeah, no, it's fucked. The whole thing's fucked. Yeah, his whole right. life got fucked horribly because of goth circumstances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jason, he was just trying to keep his head down, ducking numerous efforts by the DA to testify against Damien. 
Prosecution approached him before the trial and said, look, we'll give you 40 years if you testify against Damien right now. Jason said, no, because it's a lie. And it's not the right thing to do. Then, during the trial, they approached him again, saying they'd give him a deal that would have him out in 10 years. Which is why they paired their trials together. Mm -hmm. Again, all of this was about getting Damien Eccles. They Mm -hmm. put them together to put heat on Jason to say, see, now you're being treated like a Satanist, too. All right. of the evidence that can be used on Damien can be used on you, too, because you're, it is both of your trial. So why don't you pop yourself out of it with a fun little side quest trial by flipping on Damien? But he's the, Jason is like the most impregnable of all of them. Yeah, I mean, his integrity is, uh, I don't know if I would have it. Well, this is not the first time he saves the day either, and I'm sure we'll get into that. It really isn't. But, you know, Jason, like his lawyers, they tried to get him to take it. But to this, Jason, I mean, he said he couldn't do it even if they said they let him go right that second. He said, it's a lie. It's not right. I can't do it. Right. And it wasn't just that Jason thought lying was wrong. He also thought that there was no way that he was going to get convicted. In the biggest irony of the case, Jason thought that there was no way that his God would let something like this happen. Right. So contrary to what you might think, the prosecution didn't start the trial with the cult angle. Instead, they built up to it by emphasizing as much as possible just how brutal these murders really were in excruciating detail. And here, finally is where we can properly address the assistant medical examiner in charge of this case, Dr. Frank Peretti. Oh, yeah, this guy, Regretti Peretti, is one of the worst (laughs) uh, of these group of clowns. Right, definitely got nicknamed Spaghetti Peretti. There's a lot of things that go with Peretti, so he he probably had some problems in middle school. See, the first thing to know about this is how the position of medical examiner relates to the court in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. See, in the vast majority of the country, the medical examiner is an independent, impartial body. But in Arkansas, and this is one of the last states in the union where this is true, mm-hmm. the medical examiner's office is an arm of the prosecution, meaning that someone who is supposed to be totally objective actually works for the department whose sole job is to put people away. It's like Lady Justice in Arkansas is doing yoga and just really (laughs) bends to one side to stretch out. It's very interesting because I could see why, as like a person that you want justice to be brought, right? All of us believe in the idea that we want the justice department, the justice system, all that's supposed to make sure that things are fair and that those that have done crimes get prosecuted for them and are put in jail. But if everything... On in this your court system is built on just putting people in jail. It's like people deserve a defense. Say whatever you want about defense attorneys. I'll tell you what, with whatever whenever I go down for whatever it is that the government pins on me. Tax evasion. I bet I cannot <laughs> wait. Without a doubt. Tax evasion. Very easy. It's very easy to very look easy. at that crystal ball. Very, yeah. very easy. <laughs> well, We'll see what they say, what my money says in the Caymans. I'm certain they're having a wonderful time drinking margaritas on the beach. Uh, but it's like, I, uh, it's a part of it's like, I hope I have somebody fighting for me. Of course. No matter what the fuck is happening. No, defense me. attorneys have saved a lot of lives. There's a lot of people who are innocent on death row. They estimate right now it's anywhere from 1% to 2 or 1.5 to 2%. And that's a conservative estimate. And if that is the case in prison, if just 1% of people are innocent, that's 200,000 people. Oh, it also I mean, 
shows that's the how power huge of money. And we'll see how the power of money ended up helping them once they were in jail. But watching the staircase again, and you see the kind of money that dude can just pour out for his defense. And he's got like eight experts and all of these lawyers, and they're making fucking produced videos, and they're doing all this. There's so much shit. Uh, that's the other part of this that's very unfair is the fact that they had no resources. Yeah, so they the idea really defend and a public defender is not uh, not really reputable a lot of times, which is quite unfortunate. These guys tried their hardest. Yes, I, I mean they they really did do their best. Uh, but the second thing to know about the medical examiner position in Arkansas is that it does not need to be board certified. Oh. The test is only a formality, and in the case of Doctor Frank Peretti, he'd already failed it twice by the time he testified in this trial and he had opted out of taking it a third time for quote-unquote personal reasons oh like uh i'm too dumb <laughs> is that a personal reason to just opt out of something it's very personal i hate science <laughs> i mean that's just me i mean i don't know what happened i woke up the other day i realized i want to play the flute but i still have this job you know, it turns out I'm actually a horrible driver. I'm going to opt out of this driving test. I'll take my license. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> See, Peretti, he was competent enough to muddle his way through, like, run-of-the-mill murder cases. And it was actually said that, like, his autopsy work itself was exquisite. It was just his conclusions that were all wrong. Mm. See, Peretti had two jobs when it came to his testimony in the West Memphis Three case. Be as graphic and horrifying as possible when talking about the murders and showing pictures of the bodies and connect the knife found in the lake to the wounds on the victims. Right. He said that the scratch-like wounds that the boys suffered could only have come from a knife with a serrated blade, dragged down their skin to inflict as much pain as possible. There were no clean cuts to be found like you'd see with a straight-edge knife, until you got down to the castration. Mm. Basically, he made the boys out to be Cenobites. Yes. Yeah. And Fogelman doubled down on that, even going so far as to whack a grapefruit twice with the edge of the knife during his closing arguments and saying, look at that, just to drive the point home. Right. I'll tell you what, I'll see, all I see is breakfast. What do you see? <laughs> <laughs> I see the heads of boys just slashed <laughs> Yeah. Mary, you're fucked up. <laughs> it's a strange day for the jury when they got little plastic plates and a little plastic fort before the prosecution <laughs> makes their final case. Oh, and Peretti, he made sure to drive home the sexual angle as much as he could, neglecting to say that in his professional opinion and in the opinion of three others that the boys were not sexually assaulted. He just made sure to say over and over again that the condition of the bodies could point towards that possibility. Okay. And all of Peretti's findings were backed up by a forensic textbook written by a guy named Vincent DeMeo. And Peretti, he even bragged on the stamp because he was on first name basis with this guy. And he actually was. Wait, so he yeah, man, bragged I'm, first, on this... I'm on first name basis with Bruce Springsteen. I call, I refer to him as Bruce all the time. I say, <laughs> yeah. me and Bruce were hanging out. But like, maybe I was listening to him on my iPhone when drinking a bunch of Captain Morgan sitting on a park bench. But at the same time, I was spending quality time with Bruce. Right. 
right, right. And if you're in Atlantic City, he's singing about it, yeah. you know? So so literally he bragged like I bragged about reading a book for the Pizza Hut Book Club, book it, um, because he just read a book and it was just like, I read this one. Well, no, it wasn't that he read it. He's like, this is all the things that I'm telling you. I got all this from this textbook right here, this forensic textbook. Okay. Like, the, I am an expert. Look, look, I'm smart. I read, read this, a book. I read this book and I got all this from this book. And not only did I read this book, but I know the guy that wrote this book and he knows my name and I know his. I read Michael Jordan's biography and I swear to God my layups got better. <laughs> it's like if you committed a horrible crime in St. Pete during the wedding weekend and you said, me and Charlie Chris were hacking this woman up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so when the documentary West of Memphis was being made, the filmmakers decided to go and actually speak with Vincent DeMeo himself, okay. the guy who wrote the textbook. They gave him all the autopsy reports and all the photos from the West Memphis 3 case. And after looking at him, DeMeo surmised that Peretti had no fucking clue what he was talking about. Hey, DeMeo, what are you saying? Me, Magneti Peretti? You're wrong? <laughs> You're talking about, buddy. Come on, Vinny. Come on. You're my buddy. Come on, Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> well, DeMeo said that there was nothing in the photos or the reports to indicate that any of the wounds were actually caused by a knife. He concluded that all of those cuts and some of the bruising was done post-mortem hmm. by animals. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is where some of my favorite parts of the entire documentary series are done. It's talking to the animal experts, yes. the way they speak to, and the, and how they talk about animals and what they do to dead bodies. Because a part of it is that if you do, if you believe that they used that serrated knife to slash horizontally down the bodies in a way that did not even truly break the skin. If you look at those injuries, like you'd have to like, what is wrong with those people? That's not how you use that knife. Yeah. And here's where we're going to get into some of the very harsh realities of life and death in relation to our place in nature. Mm. See, when a person dies in a wooded area, it isn't just flies and such that take charge. All sorts of animals come around, from possums to cats to dogs to raccoons to coyotes, all kinds of shit. Mm -hmm. But these boys were found in the water. And that particular area of Robin Hood Hills had been known for years as Turtle City. And especially during that time of season. It yeah. was Turtle Season. Yeah, May. And May is when turtles are at their hungriest. And yes. I tell you what, there's nothing more fascinating to sit and watch the bustling city of Turtle City. And that's me, <laughs> Robert Turtles, an expert on turtles and what they mean to society and what they do to dead bodies. Because I tell you what, I love a turtle and I'll pet a turtle. But I wouldn't want to be dead around a total because they do bad things to pets. I believe that, and the documentary shows it. I, the man who loves turtles is quite fascinating. Oh, yeah. The makers of West Memphis 3, they went and visited this absolutely out-of-his-mind turtle breeder. Well, he wasn't out of his mind. I thought he was no, charismatic. Oh, that guy's yeah, fucking eyes twitch. Fucking yes. mind. Oh, okay, he are we going to talk about what he, he actually like, does with the turtle? Yeah. Because okay. he kept saying, like, come here, come look. Come look at what Toto can do. He's yeah. just like, Toto, they're vicious when it comes to Toto. Oh, it's Toto see dead body. I show you. All made out of meat. And the, all of the documentary guys are watching him. He sticks his hand into the water and just goes, Oh! A person who works with him is holding a turtle. The turtle, He has the turtle bite his arm. And then and the guy, he starts to bleed. He says, no, no, let it go. Yeah. And, I mean, he was a hero. There was no screaming at all. No, he was super tough about it. He was trying. He was trying not to scream. And then he removes the turtle. And his face was like. Well, he's like, yeah. Well, he definitely knew he was on camera. Yeah. Turtle, bite for camera. 
Oh, don't bite for camera. <laughs> he knew he was on camera. And he was yeah. definitely toughing it up. And then he compared. Well, we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Now, the thing is, is that like. I gotta be a little su- suspect of all this because it's more look at that evidence. But well, look at that, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> but when the turtle breeder allowed a snapping turtle to bite down on his arm, God. the wound the turtle left behind looked almost identical to the wounds seen on the boys. Yes, there's there's also other animal experts. Where there was this one guy, I remember he's like, "You'd be surprised what animals do to a dead body. A raccoon will a raccoon will chew the eyes out of a child. A dog, I will show you a dog. I will bring a dog out. I will get a corpse. Don't ask me how. I'll get a corpse and I'll bring a dog in and show just how how much a feast a dog can make out of a corpse. Right. And everyone's just like, oh, cool, great, cool, thank you. And it is unfortunate to be a pig because they're the closest to the human body and they are always used in these experiments. Dead, of course. They get tested on quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. And all the scratches on the boys that were supposedly made by the serrated edge of the knife, turtle claws. Turtle claws. Totally matched up. But the most disturbing part, which is actually somewhat of a comfort if you think about it, was the castration. See, a lot of scavengers... They go after the fleshiest parts of the body first, like the lips, cheeks, tips of nose, and the ears. For example, if you die alone in an apartment with a cat, the coroner is going to find that these are the first places that your cat has chosen to eat. Mm -hmm. Dogs Mm -hmm. will wait longer. Cats will immediately start chewing at your nose. Although I did read a story recently where the cats did not eat the corpse. And they must have been, I don't know, they were very nice cats. (laughs) They must have been been full. They must have been. (laughs) And Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, they had wounds in every single one of these spots. And concerning Christopher Byers, DeMeo determined that his worst wound was most likely done by a turtle, but definitely post-mortem. I want to point out as well, all the squirrels in the forest, they're just eating nuts. Squirrels never did nothing wrong to nobody. No, Love squ- a squirrel. No, squirrels are absolutely among the animals that will uh, eat a body. Well, if there's not enough nuts around. <laughs> a squirrel? If you're dead for, I'm going to say, 45 minutes, Kissel, in a, an embankment out in the middle by the where the truckers go, uh-huh. a squirrel's going to be up your fucking asshole <laughs> no. in, a, in a second looking oh for my. looking for, for anything, looking for your sweet, sweet beer-filled organs. Yeah, honestly, I go to Skinny Dennis quite regularly, my favorite bar here in, uh, here in Williamsburg, and I have a lot of peanuts. Yeah. So it might be a... <laughs> they must be like, this is an old country buffet for squirrels. You'd be like, could you not? <laughs> well, this conclusion that animals were responsible for the vast majority of these boys' injuries Injuries. This wasn't just DeMeo's conclusion. After DeMeo reported his findings, Peter Jackson and Fl- Fran Walsh, who were the producers of West of Memphis, mm-hmm. they used a big old chunk of their Lord of the Rings cash and hired six more forensic experts to look at the evidence as well, and they all came to the same conclusion. Thank God. Obviously, this all came out after they'd already been convicted of these crimes, mm-hmm. but it's very interesting to see, again, if they had had resources then. Oh, yeah. What could have been done? I mean, at the time of Damien and and Jason's trial back in 94, I mean, nobody cared enough, nor did anybody have the kind of money to do all that work. I mean, there were no No. documentaries. And Eddie Vedder, he was battling Ticketmaster at that time. So he had no idea what the hell was going on. And 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 at that time, it was literally just a man named the Ticketmaster (laughs) that you could go to in front of stadiums, and he would wrestle all the time. You call me, daughter. 
<laughs> like wrestle him down to the ground. Well, honestly, thank God for the celebrities getting involved in this case. And and Peter Jackson, I mean, we, all of us are Lord of the Rings fans. Huge so Lord we, of the Rings. I'll tell you a little bit with our ticket money. I, I love what they do. to. <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. That's how we helped out. I don't know. I helped every one of you who saw any of the Lord of the Rings movies or you went and saw that terrible King Kong movie sure. or, or if you saw The Amazing Dead Alive way back oh, in the day the on best. VHS like we all did, then you contributed to the West Memphis Three's defense. So now you don't have to do anything. Feel good yes, about exactly. yourself. Yes, exactly. Let's thank our celebrities because without them, I mean, I don't know what we do. If I didn't have Jennifer Lawrence describing to me what voting was, I would just be shouting at City Hall. I would just be like, how do I, how do I make a president? Yes, well, if you want more information on voting, Abe Lincoln's top hat has been covering the House and the Senate. Very exciting stuff. Very exciting. <laughs> but because nobody cared back then, the bad, lazy, tunnel vision science won out because it was the story that the prosecution wanted from their medical examiner and God knows how many cases in Arkansas over the decades have met the same fate. So hard. So so sad. I mean, that, that when I finally realized that, like what it means yeah. to have a medical examiner be a part of the prosecutor's office and mm-hmm. how these two, how these people can form a narrative together, like it sent a chill down my, my spine. It's such a conflict of interest. It's totally crazy. But Dr. Frank Peretti was not even the most misleading person in the trial. That distinction laid with Michael Roy Carson. Carson was a gas huffer with a head full of acid who just happened to be in the same juvenile facility as Jason Baldwin in August of 1993. Hmm. Who's essentially the bus driver from The Simpsons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Hell yeah, man. (laughs) So Carson testified under oath that Jason had openly bragged about the murders, saying, and this is a quote from Michael Carson's testimony. Uh, okay, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> shut up, dude. Shut up. Okay. He sucked the blood from the, the penis, right? <laughs> shut up, man. Shut up. <laughs> and the screw him. And he put the he put the balls in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, oh. dude. He did that, dude. And if you think shit. we're being it, that's accurate. That's actually that's hundred percent so. accurate. And that's really not that far off from what he actually sounded like in the trial. No, exactly. Because he's like kind of he's kind of leaning back a little bit. He's like, yeah, he sucked the yeah. blood for the penis and the scrotum. He put the balls in his mouth. Yes. And this was taken as hundred percent serious testimony. Yes. See, Michael, he'd kept this supposed knowledge all to himself for five months. It was only when his own legal troubles had started him out that he suddenly remembered that a suspect in one of the biggest murder trials in his state's history had confessed to him. And say what you want about people who do a lot of acid or people who huff gas at any opportunity they can get, they can hold a secret. <laughs> that is, that's Always. a certain. That's for Always. certain. Yeah. And when they asked Carson on the stand why it took so long for him to come forward, he said it was because he saw on TV how sad the families were. He said, quote, I have a soft heart. I couldn't take it. I'm kind of like Spider-Man <laughs> yeah. in that way. And of course, just like almost everyone else whose entire career wouldn't be ruined if they admitted they had lied or were wrong about something in this case, Michael Carson recanted completely. He'd apparently heard about all the details from a counselor at Juvie who knew all about the case. This counselor had decided, for whatever reason, to make small talk with a gas huffer about it. So the counselor was just like, okay, now I'm the patient. You're the counselor. (laughs) What do you want to know? I mean, again, it's all of everybody is 
everybody's just saying the same rumors to each other mm-hmm. and building upon the stories. And there's the the leaks coming out of the police department and out of the prosecution, which at a point seems like it's on purpose. It yeah. does seem oh, like they are letting all this information go and they're building this gigantic trial. I mean, so because we saw with Casey Anthony, right? Where it's like Casey Anthony, it worked for her because right. they figured out how to flip it in the room. Where it's like because she had already been where this was the exact opposite. They came in with a total idea of that these boys were guilty already. Yeah, and this isn't even a leak at this point. This no. is a full on. The dam is broken. I mean, this is a flood. Yeah, and of course, like uh, as soon as the counselor told this kid all this shit, he immediately used it to his own advantage because the counselor told him five months after. Jason had already left. And he right. was like, yeah, you remember Jason Baldwin's here? Yeah, yeah. This was everything that was going on in the case. And then, so this kid was like, hey, I know something about the case. You want to come talk to me? Oh, yeah. Could you maybe make all those robbery charges go away? Yes, they have um, leverage in this kitchen. In this case, the only leverage he has is this information. Mm-hmm. And he just used it. Yeah. And even though Michael Carson got his shit together and now, like, begs for forgiveness. He feels so fucking terrible because he was a fucked up kid. He's huffing gas doing acid all the time. Do we know where the uh, where the WM3R at the forgiveness on this? I, I actually don't. I have no idea. I have no I, personal. Yeah, I have. I have no idea where they stand on forgiveness Might as far as like hard. this kid and Vicky Hutchison goes, who also asked for forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is about the testimony is that it gave the prosecution the specific blood and guts it needed to throw at the jury concerning Damien and Jason. Because now you had a kid that just said, Jason told me that he had cut off the penis and sucked the blood from the penis and put the little boy's testicles in his mouth. So now you have the medical examiner that said, like, okay, this is how the boys died. Here's a picture of the boys. Here's the picture of the boys dead. This is how they died. This is the knife that was used. Then you have this Carson kid coming in and him saying... It was Jason sitting right there that told me that it was the two of them that done it. So now those two things are together. Only thing that the prosecution needed now was why. Right. Yep. What is the motive here? And finally, on the third week of the trial, they rolled it out. Satanic cult behavior. Again, Satanism is just about getting ugly men laid. <laughs> And hot women power over the world. <laughs> that's what it, that's what it's for. You're not going to. This is it. They don't do this in ritual behavior. They no. don't. They don't do. They don't do this. They don't <laughs> suck the penis in the balls. And a part of it is. But they the, might suck the penis in the balls, but absolutely. not the blood from the sen- penis in the balls. I don't know they suck the penis in the balls penis. in order to get the semen. Oh Sa- my semen goodness! Must All be right. gotten either way. <laughs> yes. Okay. But, Satanism is about they explicitly ask for consent. Yeah, and it's the it's the horror show. You are just rolling out all of these horrible fucking details. That is what is keeping the jury on the ropes. Right. That is why they are now at, at any point willing to accept anything if they believe that these little boys. These poor little boys have been murdered and castrated and left for dead in this ditch, and they were carved up with the knife, and they're saying, like, of course they're going to believe that Satan is involved, that it's some kind of cult. Like, you've now got them to a point where they'll string up anybody. And this narrative, though, this has been going on for years in the country. Uh, some some people benefited, such as Kiss, mm. even though the most corporate band of all time oh, yeah. somehow still was considered Knights in Satan's service, according to my mother. <laughs> um, but that, so this has been, this is sort of a climax, almost, of the Satan 
satanic panic movement. It's a big part of it. I mean, and, and this was the prosecution's plan the entire time. You show them all the horrible shit, and you have these people spend two weeks saying, why, why, why? Who would do this? Why right. would they do this? Why, why, why? And their, their minds are going, and they've been getting fire and brimstone shit in their head for yeah. years, and they think, like, well, the only sort of person who could do this would be an absolute monster. And then Fogelman comes in and says, like, guess what? You're right. They are monsters. And now I'm going to show you how. And the way they set this up when you watch the documentary, you know, usually the jury is supposed to go with um, uh, if there's if there's a shadow of a doubt, Mm -hmm. if you think one percent of their story might be wrong in a death penalty case, you have to acquit. I just feel like their brains were like, if there is a one percent chance that this is real, we got to find them guilty. Yeah. Yes. Now, even though Judge Burnett had said he read a book on Satanism in preparation for the trial, he was quoted in court as saying, quote, Now, I don't know what an occult is. It sounds like something bad, but I'm not sure what it is. It's an, in- it's an instrument, like an accordion, um, uh, <laughs> sir. I'll tell you what, if they're playing, it makes them gay. String them up. And so the prosecution did their best to explain to both Burnett and the jury, quote unquote, what an occult is, starting with the cops who had first spoken with Damien after the murders. Fogelman asked one of them, a one detective Ridge, what kind of books Damien read. Ridge said that Damien told him that he read Anton LaVey Mm. and Stephen King. And when Fogelman asked if there was anything unusual about these types of books, Ridge said, quote, Anton LaVey is a book of satanic rules and involvement. Stephen King seems to be horror movies, horror books. And if you're asking if I felt that was strange, yes, sir, I did. And I should know because every morning I lick my deodorant just to see what my body tastes like. So I'm a bit of an expert on the strain. But I, this is to, and, and and cars are talking in the books. I heard the cars are talking. But can you imagine this in the Stephen context, King, one of the most Stephen commercial King. authors? Yes, in exactly. history. Literally, this is like um, who the hell made all those born uh, books? Uh, I, the I Jason don't Bourne. know. Why, why do you say Dean Koontz? Dean yeah. Koontz. I mean, who cares? It would be ju- judging someone for the content that they consume is totally insane. What? Well, what? Uh, one of the jurors who eventually voted for guilt. What uh, they said when they were talking, doing the deliberations. One of them actually wrote in big block letters up on the whiteboard. Yeah, are what you think okay for, that's the no for, the, the no, only thing the only thing, thing they could have been able to rationally write is stephen king does have problems ending the books <laughs> so can we trust this child the stand was way too long his ideas are wonderful but his dialogue leaves something to be desired why what pray tell did he include wizard of oz as a part of the dark tower mythos <laughs> there's no reason for it it is gilding the lily no it does uh it's important to remember okay i i just want to also keep reiterating this like obviously these are our opinions and stuff that we think of it's a things that we draw to a conclusion of upon reading and looking at this and looking at all the things at play uh we are editorializing because it's our show but if you really think about how ridiculous this bullshit is, oh yeah, it just starts. It just starts to make. I get a twitch. Like I'm getting a. Tw- I get a twitch reading 
about it. Uh, now, Mr. Kissel, is it true you watched Leprechaun 1 starring Jennifer Aniston, Leprechaun <laughs> 2, Leprechaun when he went to Las Vegas, and also Leprechaun in Space, sir? Now, no one even watched Leprechaun in Space, but now you said you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, they talked about all the stupid goth kid shit that Damien had offhandedly told him. All the shit about the power of the penis and such. You know, all the stuff that was grilled out of a miner in the front yard of his buddy's trailer without any sort of lawyer present. Right. And the defense, they argued, all that should be totally inadmissible because of the manner in which the information was obtained. Right. But Judge Burnett said that the police reports and the investigations were not the subject of this trial. They well, kind of are, though. What was a subject <laughs> of the trial? <laughs> you fucking... Oh, I wish I could slap your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> what was a subject of the trial to Judge Burnett was the phase of the moon, which was <sighs> deemed fully admissible because on the night of the murders, May 5th, 1993, a full moon shone down on West Memphis, Arkansas. So this conservative judge does not know what an occult is, but is really into astrology? Uh, here's the thing. That was one of the main points of occult expert Dale Griffiths, Ph.D. Griffiths was a self-proclaimed expert on the occult from Tiffin, Ohio, oh. who was brought to the stand by the prosecution to give his opinion on whether or not this was an occult slang. Remember, we are also self-proclaimed experts on the occult, and do you want us to be an expert witness for your trial? <laughs> and in this case, the PhD stands for Pretty Hot and Damning. Hello. Oh, right. Right. Come on. There it is. Whoa. Wow, wow. Are you, are you hiring writers? Hey, hey, no, no. And the reason why Del Griffiths had even heard of West Memphis was because a year earlier, before the killings had even occurred, Dale had gotten a call from a concerned citizen named Jerry Driver uh. about some mean old kids carrying staffs down at the trailer park. Griffiths said that his experience included a 26-year career in law enforcement, of which I'm not throwing into doubt at all. He was, in fact, deputy chief of the Tiffin Police Department, mm. and he did bother many people about the prevalence of occult crimes. Because okay. you know how it is in Tiffin, Ohio. Mm. It's a hotbed of the meddling of Satan. Oh, and that. the fates of humankind. <laughs> Tiffin, Ohio. Where a, the final battle of Armageddon <laughs> will take place. Yep. But his main qualification, in his mind, was his doctoral degree from Columbia Pacific University. Columbia University? Columbia it? Pacific University. Oh, Paci oh, okay. oh okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, As well okay. as his consulting practice about Satanism. He was a Satanism consultant. Okay. And, and like, yeah. what was that? Did he tell people what shade of black to wear? <laughs> like, what is a what is a Satanism consultant exactly? Honestly, it's better to have a red base black than a blue base black because you don't really because it, black lights fuck with a blue base black. <laughs> well, the fact you know that, all right, it doesn't matter. I'm a Satanist consultant. <laughs> okay, I would say right. I, I am. I have the same level of uh, expertise that he does. Well, Griffiths, he'd even written four books. Huh. He wrote The Investigation Manual for Non-Traditional Groups, A Primer for Law Enforcement on Non-Traditional Groups, Runes, Glyphs, and Alphabets. Ooh, Alcitra. Yeah. And The Four Faces of Satan. Ooh, what are those? Confused? You know the one with that irk face? Because yeah. it's all emojis. Yeah. Oh, um, I the see. The crying, laughing one, uh -huh. um, the frowning one, and then the one that's all red and mad. Ooh. <laughs> Thing is, though, 
Columbia Pacific University was a non-accredited correspondence college that was shuttered by a court order in the year 2000 and is now represented visually on Google by a picture of the founder with his cat. Hello, my name is Patrick. Uh, my name is Patrick Tomilton. I am the director <laughs> of Columbia Pacific University, and this is my first PhD student here. Mr. Muffins, <laughs> who got a PhD in making biscuits on my belly. Oh, that's actually tough for a cat to do. <laughs> but still, despite the many protestations of the defense, Judge Burnett allowed Griffiths to testify in the area of the occult, and this is after <clears throat> Burnett denied both a polygraph expert and a false confessions expert in Jesse's trial because he didn't consider them pertinent. Okay, so okay, so this guy, he went, got a degree from a university that's not accredited. Mail order. Mail order university. What was the name of the guy who uh, has who failed the test two times? Uh, Peretti. Peretti. He failed the test two times. And these are the only expert witnesses other than the person who offs gas and the waitress. Yeah. Yep. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the dream tape. The dream team, yeah. <laughs> so Fogelman started off by asking Griffiths if there was anything occult-wise to the claim that Jason had sucked the blood from the penis of one of the boys on May 5th during a full moon. And Griffiths said, absolutely. Yeah. First of all, May 5th is only a few days after May 1st, which is not only Henry's birthday, oh. but it's also Beltane. And it's also only a few more days after Valpurgisnacht. And these are both occult holidays hmm. that sounded both mysterious and evil in the context of sucking blood from a little boy's penis. It's well, not well, about doing that. It's about seeing girls in see-through shirts, and it's about dancing drunk in a field. And again, <laughs> if it's a few days afterwards, it's not on well, the day. What? So if it's not on the day... The ritual doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, no, you would know. do I mean, a build up to the full moon, but mostly that is about your. That's like a interpersonal life forces waxing and waning. That's what you're supposed to do in corresponding to the moon. Nothing to do with like again, but also what's the ritual for? I, Marcus? <laughs> I, I it, it seems like the satanic version of Oktoberfest. Yeah, a little you're bit. correct. Okay, you'd be close to that. Yeah. Thank you. Now, here's what it's for. It's for the blood. Because Griffiths said the younger the individual, the more pure and full of energy that the occult practitioner believed the blood to be. So they probably drank it and maybe took some home to drink and bathe in as well. Ugh. And they did it for power. But and they no did it while Damien Eccles lived with his entire family in two rooms. In a trailer, he brought he bathed in the blood of a child. How is it even? Yeah, it's too ridiculous to be true. Yeah, and from there they went to how the boys were tied up. And this right here that that Henry is about to uh, read, and I want you to read this verbatim because I want people to know exactly what this guy sounds like. This is Griffiths's expert occult opinion on why the boys were tied up the way they were, and this is straight from the trial transcripts. All right, I'm just an everyman. Let me see if I'm swayed. Well, you you would. You, you would look in such books as, quote-unquote, ceremonial magic by uh, uh, Crowley, and uh, f then from working uh, in, uh, w with that and looking at the way the people were displayed, uh, you know, there, to me, appeared... To be no other reason 
for that type of position. Verbatim. Judge, I just have to ask, what the fuck? <laughs> can I just, can I say fuck? A piece from, uh, seems to be a construction site, like some type of rod or some kind of hinge, some form of, some sort of screw, fell off the top of the construction site and has seemed to, um, well, that there and this and was and whom and where, um, lodged itself into the center of my skull without killing me, giving me powers of perception. Well, I don't know what that means, but Stephen King cannot end a book. Well, then they moved on to the ages of the boys. Hmm. Griffiths claimed that the fact that they were eight years old was significant in a magical sense. And now what we're going to do, we're going to do a bit of a back and forth between Griffiths and Damien's lawyer. And this is, again, totally from the court transcripts. All right. Okay, now is eight a factor because that is a witch's number? What's the significance of eight? Okay. In in Crowley's, in, uh, in in Crowley's work, he discusses that uh, sex before eight, or you lose the magical power. Uh, sex before eight, or lose magical power. Okay, so that if the victims were all eight years old, then that wouldn't be sex before eight, correct? I said say eight. I'm sorry, not nine, eight, eight or before. Verbatim. These are just words. These are just, he's just saying words. I mean, honestly, I thought he was just going to tell the joke about seven, eight, nine. But uh, God, so the jury—they're just—they just, they're they just must eating be, it up. Be, but are they, how do you even eat that up? What? what because it's just words. It's just, it's just wacky words. You say Crowley. Okay. You say blood. You say eight. You say witch. You say magical. And they know they don't understand it, but they don't need to understand it because Griffiths understands it. And let's go get even further into that okay. shit about how much Griffiths supposedly understands, because Griffiths went on to say that this belief about the sex before eight he said that it's shared by the oto whom we know as ordo templi orientis but griffiths didn't say ordo templi orientis he called him ordo temporis originis which i think i went a little a little bit latin translating Mm -hmm. i think that means order of the beginning of time which sounds super cool yeah sure it just sounds like people that are early all the time which <laughs> oh, is not cool. honestly I, I don't like early people making me feel late for being on time but the thing is is that nobody has ever heard of ordo temporis originis because it doesn't exist yeah well, either griffiths, magical order. <laughs> either griffiths didn't know what he was talking about or he knows about some super weird shit going on out there that isn't written about anywhere on the internet except in transcripts of Griffiths' testimony. All right, let so me... you mean to tell me that Griffiths is the pitchfork of the occult? <laughs> <laughs> let me just open up my book of nerd. <laughs> OTO. Don't find it. <laughs> this is like an old-timey nerd alert bell instead of the siren. It's like, dong, dong. Well, I actually, I got a theory about all this. See, Griffiths, he said during his testimony when he was defending his credentials that he spent quite a bit of time in San Francisco and such hanging out with occult groups. Oh, my God. He just sucked up. He did something with the man, and then he woke up <laughs> yes. and was like, oh, I don't know. Oh, that witch <laughs> got me again. Got me good. I told that witch man to not let me suck his penis. I do not want to be hypnotized. I'm supposed to be home with my wife. <laughs> well, 
Griffiths, he's not really what you call a hip dude. Right. You know, you could see this dude coming a fucking mile away. And this is like late 70s, early 80s, occult San Francisco. Uh, most likely... Griffiths was probably just everyone's favorite guy in the occult community to fuck around with. I mean, I'm sure they just told him all sorts of crazy shit because they knew that he'd believe anything they told him. Sure. We like binaries. We like opposites against each other. What it's a part of the, uh, the occult thinking, what's fun, is to have a guy like this square around that Mm -hmm. you can joke on or talk and have because in a way... Not only does it sort of solidify in a weird kind of backwards logic that I like playing with, it solidifies the fact that I am smarter than this person who is supposed to be the arm of the law and all things pure. I keep him here essentially as my plaything, and I lied to him. We all do, because he's sitting there taking all these notes, and we're just having a blast with him. It's also, strangely, it balances me out. It makes me feel powerful knowing that I can dance circles around this guy who's sitting in the middle of... Because 1980s occult San Francisco was fucking balling. I wish I was there for that shit. That sounds great. Um, The kids of that generation seem to be real fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as what they told him, like later on in his testimony, he name checked a cult called Kratos. uh, And he said that they removed testicles so they could get at semen. And that makes no sense. sense. Yeah, that didn't make any sense at all. It's like removing the worker so you can get some good. uh, That's like removing the worker so you can make cars. (laughs) How how is that even possible? This is. Again, this may this belies some of my ignorance, and I don't want to have the audience to lo- lose faith in my expertise. But if you just got balls and you squeezed them, would it <laughs> come <laughs> out of them? Like, no, or does no, it gotta not come a, out? Like, no, this no, is I, like in sixth grade they talk about this stuff. I don't remember sixth grade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't the, know how come it's made. How did the <laughs> Siemens get born? The Vosgefrens, I think. Isn't that the thing? Because like, I don't in know. There. Yeah. <laughs> You have too much coconut milk. I don't know what the hell. I don't Some know. Happens. But the thing is that nobody's ever heard of Kratos either. You okay. know, and I've actually got I've got a book. It's a really fun book. It's called Cults That Kill. Ooh. And I've flipped oh. through it over the years. It's a satanic panic book. Uh, and when I was researching this, uh, I pulled it off the shelf and I opened it up. I was like, well, maybe there's something about Kratos in here. And I opened it up and the first page that I saw was a quote from Dale Griffiths. Really? Interesting. Uh, yeah. And there's, I mean, this guy was... He was uh, at the forefront of law enforcement saying that pretty much any murder that's kind of weird uh, is occult related. Synchronicity. But, but Kratos, not there. Like, yeah, nothing honestly, d- did not exist. So he's getting all of his positive reinforcement from this stuff, too. He's getting yeah. published. Everyone's yes. listening to him. Oh, yeah. I a part of it is that I can see why he had he held sway over the court because he really was this, the guy at the time. He yeah. was the face of satanic expertise. Sure. And you know what? I have no doubt that Griffiths saw some awful shit at one point. I mean, it's most likely he saw a pentagram or something similar somewhere at a brutal crime scene. Like, this shit got stuck in his head somehow. He didn't, he's not, Griffiths is not Jerry Driver. Maybe Jerry Driver made all this shit up. But Griffiths, like, he saw some horrible shit that turned him to this. Maybe he saw the first Starbucks go up on (laughs) Haight-Ashbury. Who knows? (laughs) He's definitely not the expert that he claims to be like he doesn't he does not know his shit he's got himself all wrapped up in the worldview that just did not exist and still does not exist 
So after the OTO shit, Griffiths went into more numerology, saying that the fact that there were three kids was significant because some think the beast actually wrote six is three. So three, three, three is really six, six, six. I hate it. I hate that dumb shit. (laughs) Yeah, they just and then he rounded it all out by saying that the injury on the left side of the face on one of the boys was significant because of the whole right side is good, left side is evil thing that all Satanists supposedly believe. The whole uh, median line of the body. Right side good, left side evil. This is a court of law. Why are they talking about this stuff? This is is not evidence. This is nothing. This is make-believe. Well, because that is the, because that's what I'm starting to realize. Oh, it's like when they make it their motive, they can do this, right? Because then they have a legal precedent. That's what our friend Cena Gaznavi, who is the lawyer that I call with all my lawyer questions, and what he says is stuff like that, is that if you set up this line of questioning, then all of this stuff is admissible. Yeah. Even though it is horseshit. And I was talking to Cena at the wedding. Um, he loves when you call with all your questions. He <laughs> loves it. Why did he pass the bar then if he wasn't going to talk to his friends? Well, after that, Griffiths went for Damien specifically. He used all sorts of quote-unquote evidence, you know, from Damien's Master of Puppets poster oh. to Damien's Book of Shadows journal to just a fucking dog skull that he had in his room. Uh Judge, we the jury find this guy to be rock and roll. Is that oh, yeah. Is that part of- wow. And yeah, honestly, and even- it's also this is you would be you would be hung from a gallows, Marcus, if they looked at your fucking bullshit just for a second. Yeah. yeah, they do not want to look into my office. Well, you're just interested in things. <laughs> yeah, There's nothing wrong with no, being interested no, in things. Nothing, nothing wrong at all, you know? And and, and to, to hear Burnett talk, because I read the whole transcript of uh, Griffiths' testimony, and to see Burnett try to wrap his head around is something simple as a Metallica album. And he's right. like, look at him, he's like, what is that? He actually says, what is that, Matt? Ma- Master Puppet? Master Puppet? What is Ma- Master, Master Puppet? Puppet? Yes, I watched it. It's, it's a great... Meanwhile, sh- if they just put on Master of Puppets for a second, he would start shotgunning beers. Because that's... No shit, what... I honestly want to know. What music are they playing in the bars in this town? I'm sure Metallica is being played. No, not back then. Oh, I don't know, man. But did Metallica ever make a statement about this? Dude, actually, the Paradise Lost documentaries are the only movies in which Metallica ever licensed use of their songs. Really? But they but only course, gave but them one song. They gave, they gave them, them Sanitarium. No, they oh, gave, they gave them uh, Sanitarium, Fade to Black, and okay. I can't remember what the third one is, but I, and Unforgiven. One, un- Unforgiven. Unforgiven. Oh, at least it wasn't a Lars drum solo. That's all. <laughs> Although he's a very talented drummer. <laughs> eh, he's not the best one. Honestly, you know me, I'm a Ringo guy, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. After seeing him uh, live the last time, uh, he's, Yeah, but they're... That, he's they had it all night because I saw them the week before and they were really good yeah so. yeah yeah but yeah Lars is notoriously like hey he, he's okay but regardless yeah Metallica yeah they didn't use no none of their songs were in movies until uh I think it was Mission Impossible 2 what if we do a thing where no one can hear our art <laughs> wouldn't that be fun I think that's super rad Lars my therapist told me that it's very important for me what? to scream alone have your therapist get in touch with my therapist and we'll set up a meeting with our therapist <laughs> <laughs> the things they put together all this shit to say that Damien was most likely involved in the occult. His little stupid goth kid journal, Metallica poster, dog skull. Uh, and But the thing is, they still had to tie Jason Baldwin into this. Mm-hmm. And Jason Baldwin was a little harder, but they managed it. What's about to follow, and again, I want this verbatim, just so people know how dumb it is. 
This is John Fogelman, the lead attorney. This is his exact reasoning from the trial transcripts as to why he Ugh. thought Jason Baldwin was also an occult practitioner. All right. It is my understanding that part of the involvement deals with obsession with heavy metal music, chains and forms of dress, wearing all black. And I believe the proof would show that he had 15 black t-shirts with the heavy metal thing. And he had some kind of animal, either claws or teeth. I, th- I think they said they were claws in his possession. Verbatim. What? First of all, it's weird that they're counting this kid's t-shirts. And I cannot <laughs> believe... That is absolutely insane. That's insane. And that's how they... I mean, because that's the, the whole thing about Jason Baldwin. He's tacked on in this case. He is they just, got him on t-shirts. T-shirts. That is exactly what they got him on. They if got you him on- tried to count the amount of black horror t-shirts i have they would make me the king of satanism if this is what they would say they would say like i was the grand conquistador of all evil because i probably have a hundred horror t-shirts and to be fair i don't even want to just wear black t-shirts but my body is set and it's the only (laughs) thing that works for me it's what johnny cash said later in his life they're like why do you always dress in black you mentioned the death row stuff and prisoners and then he tacked on it's also very slimming so that's why i do it i would love to wear a white shirt yeah and this shit was enough to brand these kids as satanic cult killers because of their apparel because their apparel god they didn't have a jinko in town no good lord and we're not saying that people don't use satan as an excuse to kill because you know we've already mentioned richard ramirez once in this series and there's so many different crime scene photos of you know dudes and ladies with pentagrams cut into their chest or in their arm or whatever but you know to bring another serial killer into it gary ridgway sure as hell used christianity to justify killing 71 women over 16 years he even had a bible verse to point towards for inspiration ezekiel 16 35 through 40 the murders are the problem not the faith of the murderer yeah, the point david berkowitz said a dog told him to do it <laughs> the point here is that a pentagram doesn't make you a potential cult killer any more than having a bible makes you a potential serial killer right. nice it might Fuck make you, you pieces of shit. <laughs> it might make you a thief from those hotel rooms, though. Yeah, the Gideons. Yes. So after Griffiths, Fogelman and Davis brought in a couple of girls from the softball confession, had both of them tell their stories, and that was it. Because remember, Jesse Miss Kelly's confession didn't come into this at all. Now, the prosecution, they tried to, like, judge the confession into the proceedings casually, and they almost caused a mistrial in the process. But it was never at the forefront. Like Henry said, everyone knew about it. And you know what? Judge Burnett said the same fucking thing. Right. When they mentioned the confession in Jesse and Jason's trial, the defense was immediately, I call for the for a mistrial. And Burnett said, there's not a person in this room that doesn't know about that confession. Hence yep. the mistrial. Yeah. He's like, but the, even before, he's like, there's not a person in this room that didn't know about this confession coming into this thing. So, right. you know, you're not allowed to talk about it, but I'm not going to I'm not going to call a mistrial. It just seems like a conversation happening with a bunch of concerned fathers and they don't understand their kids. Yeah. And they're trying to it just uh, I, I can't believe that this that dialogue was in a court of law to sentence someone to death. It's past that. They all became uh, they all became driver. Mm-hmm. The entire court right. became driver. They became this idea because because of the nature of the way they live and the nature of these crimes, they all got an inflated sense of self. In my mind, this is obviously my opinion, 
but they have a uh, an inflated sense of self where they looked at all of this and mean like we are conquering the devil today. Yeah, that's yeah. how they, that's how they, you flip it. You flip into this idea of this this very intense mythological battle when you really are like these. No one's thinking about any of these kids. Right. They didn't think about the boys that were murdered. And they did not think about Damien Eccles or James, or Jesse. They don't think about them at all. They view them all as like they're all now pawns in this game yeah. where they have to defeat Satan. It's interesting. It seems to me a little bit after 9-11, obviously the worst tragedy on American soil. Um, but after that, I was at this small town, uh, Menominee, Wisconsin. Everyone was on the front lines of the war on terror. Yeah. Sure, it was something that was real in many ways. But my friend uh, got caught throwing a snowball. They charged him with throwing of missile. And then <laughs> He's in job interview after job interview after graduating. They're like, what's this throwing of missile? And he has to explain it's a snowball. Oh, and I mean, God. it was that kind of the, the post 9-11 yeah. uh, panic. It, it seems a little bit reminiscent to this. Oh, yeah. No, no. Panics never change. It's always it's always the same. And it's going to keep happening all throughout. It's going to keep happening. And, and, you know, until the sun burns out or until Absolutely. we all drown to death. One of the two. I, oh. Entertaining ourselves to death. That book should be like given to people now everyone needs to read that book this panic and extremism is why we are we are where we're at and it's only going to get worse until we stop looking to be excited and maybe just try to live a a normal life and put a little bit of humanity in the story which is why we side on this on the side of the the west memphis three because a part of this if you just look at the human factor they're the subtleties of it, like the idea of still again remembering these kids are fucking 16, 17 years old. They're kids. They have no clue what they're talking about. The victims were uh, their lives were cut short before they even got to exist. It's it's all very sad. Yeah. And Damien, 18. But um, quick question. Some burning out or drowning. What do you want? I'm going to go with, uh, as far as the overall extinction, yeah. I'm going to go with drowning because I think I could, I'm a good swimmer. You're a pretty good swimmer, yeah. but yeah, I'm going to go for drowning as well. Okay. Yeah, because no, I want to nice. see the sun explode. <laughs> okay. I want to see the moment come. I want to just go and look, yeah, and watch the flame shoot all over. All right, all right, that's all the right. thing is it takes eight minutes for it to get here so you could put on Master of Puppets. And by the time Master of Puppets is over, fucking Terminator 2, yeah. Well, the prosecution... At the end of it, all they had was a knife that might have been used in the crime found near a suspect's house and some dickhead who said that these teenagers were killers because they were into weird shit. Mm -hmm. But Damien and Jason's defense wasn't all that great either. For some idiotic reason, Damien's defense team thought it was a good idea to put Damien on the stand. Not uh, a good idea. Uh, now, Damien, I mean, he actually did okay considering. I mean, he didn't mouth off. He answered the questions truthfully. But, and, you know, it's like when you, when you don't m- mouth off to your dad, but you're rolling your eyes. He's like, yeah. I know what you're doing. <laughs> like, it was a lot of that, like, body, lo- yeah, yeah. body language. It, it was, de- yes, it was definitely a lot of that. But, you know, really... All the testimony really did was give the prosecution a chance to make Damien look even spookier in front of the jury. Right. You know, for example, they trotted out this weird cipher that Damien had done in prison when he was bored using his name, his girlfriend's name, and the name of Aleister Crowley. Of course, that gave the prosecution to talk about Crowley again and all the weird shit Crowley had done and said. And when they asked Damien if he'd read any Crowley, Damien totally could have just said no. Instead, Damien said no, 
but only because I've never been able to find any of his books. If I could find his books, I'd read it, absolutely, but I've never been able to find any of his books, so no. You know, this is West Memphis. It's not even the Crowley part. It's the reading part, sir. <laughs> yes. I'm, just, I'm not maligning the great people of yeah. Arkansas. And the defense also brought out Damien's mom and cast a little aspersion towards Mark Byers, but we're not going to get in all that. Uh, but, you know, the defense, they still, Damien's defense still ended up resting their case with a rational law enforcement officer who said that the whole occult crime phenomenon just didn't exist. It's just not there. And that's okay. true. It didn't exist. It's not there. But that was it. That was it. And At least J- they called someone. Yeah. And Jason's defense was even shorter. They only called one person. See, they thought that this was their case to lose because the only thing the prosecution had really said about Jason was that he wore a bunch of black T-shirts right. and he hung out with Damien. And that's true. That's all they had on Jason. Honestly, what they should have done here is found an extra small shirt that Jason used to wear as a child and say, if he cannot fit in this T-shirt, <laughs> uh, that is I his. I him doing the, doing the OJ look. I just can't even can't, I can't get it on. Just got his belly button still exposed. Be like, that makes it just 14 shirts. <laughs> so Jason's defense they brought up an analyst to talk about the red fiber and the analyst said that he would have excluded Jason's mother's robe as a source of the fiber found in the victim's clothing and that was it and after all that the jury deliberated for less than five hours Jeez. before reaching a verdict it's never good when the jury is like we got it when's the wheel on yeah. is wheel on at six can we wrap this up yeah, and this was far less time than what Jesse's jury took Jesse took almost a, it took a day these guys Four and a half hours. Jeez. Jesus un- Christ. To yeah. decide someone's death. Yeah. Um, Friday. No, this is just to see if they were guilty or not guilty. Right, right. Yeah. On Friday, March 18th, 1994, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were both found guilty of capital murder. Whew. Following the verdict, it took the jury two hours and 20 minutes to decide that Jason Baldwin would spend his life in prison while Damien <sighs> Eccles would be put to death by lethal injection. Good Lord. I, I know you can't put a time limit on this stuff, but I just feel like a day. Uh, just, 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 you know, come on. If, if you get to bring Stephen King into it again, it's like if you can't watch the Green Mile right. in the space of time, then right. spend a little bit more time on if it. You can't just watch think about two- John Coffey for a <laughs> yeah. second before you decide to sentence him to death. Good Lord. I, don't, I mean, I don't think I could ever do it. I, I, that's probably why I will never be a juror on a murder trial. I'm just so yeah. against the death penalty. Yeah. I can't imagine sending this kid to death. But. And then after that came 18 years of waiting. 18 <sighs> Years and yeah. waiting waiting. Is, waiting is a nice way to put it. It w- was waiting. it was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, I mean, Jason he ended up doing just fine by his own admission. He actually said that he figured out prison pretty fast. He found a little nice little niche for himself working with computers. Uh, Jesse he did okay as well. He got a tattoo of a clock on his head. I know missing the hands, <laughs> which is, missing which the hands. Is, missing my the problem hands. with Jesse's tattoo is that it's just like I don't know if it helps or hurts <laughs> his case because it, it's just like. Because they were like, Jesse, what's with that tattoo of the clock with no hands on your on your head? He's like, time. <laughs> well, I think it, I, I don't know. It is an interesting tattoo. Not the worst tattoo I've ever seen as far as prison goes. It's as far as prison. It's just it looks. It looks like a like a bad yarmulke or something. Or right. Not it even does. that. Like it looks. It just looks. It does. You just look at it and you're like, what am I looking at? It's a prison and you're not tattoo. Even li- not even listening to anything. I was. I found it so hard to listen to anything he was saying because I was staring at his fucking head and trying to figure out what is that. It well, gives him the sake the same weird hairline of. Do you remember George Clooney during the ER days when he had the Caesar <laughs> cut? It yeah, sort yeah. of looks like that. 
But yes. then he he shows you and goes time, and <laughs> yeah. you're just like, oh. I know, man. I'm I'm with you, man. <laughs> well. Damien's time in prison. I mean, these guys, you know, Jesse's getting tattoos and, you know, Jason is working with computers. But Damien's time in prison was nothing but pure fucking misery. Because they thought they they thought he murdered, murdered three, three children. Yeah. So there's a couple of expert uh, excerpts from his book, uh, Life After Death, which if you haven't read it, I just highly recommend it. And uh, I won't read these things necessarily uh, exactly, but of course he talks about how you know the the uh, the only energy directed at you is hatred, rage, disgust, stupidity, ignorance, and brutality. He talks about how that affects you, and then he tells this story about how uh, there was just a bunch of mosquitoes outside of this really swampy prison that he was staying at. I believe it was Varner uh, uh, Security Prison. And he tells this story. He says, the entire ground is like one giant mosquito hatchery. If you think you know what a swarm of mosquitoes is like just because you've been camping or sat in the backyard on a summer night, then you're badly mistaken. I've seen entire walls covered by blankets of mosquitoes. Every time you take a step, a cloud of them rises from the ground. I've literally cried in frustration more than once because the mosquitoes were such a torment. My hands have been bitten so many times. Um, um, that they basically would swell up like sausages, and every year the wall looks like an abstract painting because of the blood spots from the sl- from the smashed mosquitoes. So um, just imagine that you're buried alive and uh, constantly attacked by walls and walls of mosquitoes. There was no sleeping, and he goes on to say this continues all summer long. It gets even worse when the mos- when the mosquitoes discover they can breed in the toilets in the empty cells. Ugh. So it is horrifying. He also tells this story about his cell. The first one that he was in he says he's uh he saw a shape of a dead man on the wall and the shape was this man etched uh, kind of um uh what etched his body in pencil traced it yeah traced his Jesus. body in pencil and he talks about looking at that and he could not erase it he said if i erase that that's the last living memory of this person mm-hmm. he said the next person who rolls into this cell they can erase it if they want to but he stared at that for years the outline of a person who was put to death before him yeah and he was also like he was in solitary confinement for the vast majority of it vast he would majority. he would ma- he wouldn't even get outside for an hour a day like they would let him get into well, a room with a window yes. above him that whole constitutional thing where uh, they get one hour guaranteed is dog shit they take you 10 feet down a hall it's just a slightly larger room maybe and maybe a basketball hoop maybe yeah or or nothing at all and they say that's your one hour activity uh, of activity he also talks um you know he he got his ass kicked from the security guards basically um and he talks about how his teeth there is no dental care in prison he says several years ago i was beaten by a pack of sadistic guards which caused nerve damage to several of my teeth now the prison gave me a choice of living with the pain or having my teeth pulled out i've been in pain ever since they don't allow you to have any kind of dental surgery whatsoever so it's you pull them out or you live with the pain and God. that's what he had to do riding away alone for a crime he didn't commit and i mean again read the book there are there's a few very light-hearted stories <laughs> um one is about this dude who owned a pet rat that they nicknamed butterfly 
because there was a rumor that he had butterfly wings on his left cheek and his and his right cheek of his butt. Mm-hmm. And they say <laughs> if he wiggled it just so, it looked like a butterfly flapping its wings. Um, <laughs> that, and that is was funny. The, that was the only thing. Because yeah, like, you, you, you gotta laugh. Because you, you gotta, gotta laugh. laugh. <laughs> and the guy hated it. And I'm sure, if he wrote his uh, wrote his book about prison, he'd be like, they called me butterfly. And, and, like it drove the guy nuts. But yeah. um, if you just want to know what that true hell was like, please read that book. And I think it'll give you more sympathy for people on death row. And again, they estimate conservatively the uh, the Innocence Project up to two percent of people on death row are innocent, and up to two uh, percent of people in in the general population are innocent. And that is two hundred thousand people. And I yeah. think that number is actually much higher. But I think it's much higher as well. And that's the thing about the death penalty is like even if one person is innocent, then it negates the whole process. Right. You know, and there are plenty of people on death row who are a hundred percent innocent. And the other thing about Damien's uh, solitary confinement is uh, because his eyes uh, did yep. not see light. He has to wear sunglasses now. 24-7. Uh, 24-7. Because his eyes cannot handle light. Well, you have to train yeah, your eyes like cool anything else. Way. It's not no. like a cool thing. No. Yeah, no, no, it's no. Not, yeah. It's like, and he can't see more than, what, two feet in front of him now? He can, he can barely see it all because you have to train your eyes to see distances. You don't yeah. even realize you're doing it every day. Yeah. And all he looked at was a wall uh, for 18 years, got his ass kicked on a regular basis. <sighs> Damn. So even with the public support and the documentaries and the books and such, appeal after appeal for the West Memphis Three got denied. That's because the person in charge was still Judge David Burnett. Well, because the idea of to go all the way back, for them to rescind after all this... I mean, that would mean that they've been wrong this whole time. Then what else is wrong about their court? Yeah. See, for both Burnett and John Fogelman... This was a marquee case. I mean, they were the valiant men who put away the demonic Damien Eccles and put the child murders at Robin Hood Hills in the past. And there was no way in hell that either of them were ever going to give an inch, especially when there were judgeships and Senate seats to be had. Right. And they, they put this in the past as well as the parents who burnt down Freddy Krueger's house put Freddy <laughs> yes. in the past. I think it kept on haunting. Yeah. I mean, Judge Burnett, he wasn't even swayed when new evidence came to light in 2007. A hair that had been found stuck to one of the shoelaces used to tie up the boys was properly tested against the DNA of the West Memphis Three. And it was found that none of them were a match. And still, Judge Burnett denied a new trial. He wouldn't even hear the arguments and, in fact, refer to the whole case as, quote unquote, something he had to fool with and the new evidence as, quote unquote, hoopla. Lock him up. Lock him <laughs> up. Lock him up. <laughs> See, the uh, Arkansas Attorney General's office, they'd taken the position that there was no way that they could ever wrongly convict someone and that the only new evidence that should ever be brought forth in a decided case was evidence that proved that they were even guiltier. Why would you spend your own money to send your lawyers in to make you more guilty than you were? All right, I gave you some DNA. A defense attorney, here's some DNA. Go sprinkle it around the scene. Yeah. Just so that they know I did it. (laughs) Well, eventually the case was taken all the way up to the Arkansas Supreme Court, who, to their credit, talked to the AG's office like they were a bunch of morons and ruled in favor of the new evidence being seen. Then, in 2010, perhaps the biggest roadblock to freedom left. Judge Burnett was elected to state senate in Arkansas. Hell yeah. And was replaced by circuit court judge David Laser. I'm always glad the idea of like you just 
you just suck your way up the ladder. Yes. That's my favorite part about the way our system works is that you're just mediocre enough until you're promoted. Mm -hmm. Dude, working in a corporate setting for nine months, the amount of failing up that I saw just in that (laughs) small amount of time is phenomenal. Interestingly, uh, Judge Burnett, Democrat. Oh, look mm. at that. Look at that. Oh, oh God, no. <laughs> hey. Yeah, and another interesting coded to Burnett's story, uh, he actually may not have been as unmoved by the new evidence as we might think. He actually lost re-election in 2016 after introducing legislation the year before to abolish the death penalty mm. in the state of Arkansas. That was the hill he died on. Okay. So with Burnett out of the way. It's a good figure of speech, by the way, for what he did. That that is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, but that's very interesting. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, I found that out like earlier today. Uh, yeah, he uh, he was he became a death penalty opponent, and I'm, that was why that was why. And he knew uh, going into it, like Arkansas, this state, you know, go, going against uh, death penalty. Uh, he uh, he knew that it was a big risk, and he took it, and he lost. Good luck. Good luck. So with Burnett out of the way, a new trial was all but assured. But as time crept closer and closer. It was obvious that the state of Arkansas was not looking forward to being humiliated on a worldwide stage. Mm. So, in order to avoid another trial, they found a solution that kind of, sort of worked for everyone. This is is, one of the craziest things in uh, criminal justice. This is the kind of shit of why, like, if I was forced to be in law school... (laughs) <laughs> I would never have made it because right. there's all of these rules. We're just well, like, what are you fucking talking about? Yeah. Well, Arkansas went to Damien, Jesse, and Jason with something called an Alford plea, which is among the most confusing curiosities of the American mm. criminal justice system. When a defendant enters an Alford plea, and I think I got this right, when a defendant enters an Alford plea, they are not admitting to the crime, nor are they saying they are guilty. Right. What it means is that they are admitting that the evidence against them would be likely to persuade a jury to find them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, so they are pleading guilty, but also saying that they are not guilty. Right. So in other words, the defendants are saying that they know the state could totally fuck them over should they choose to do so despite the state knowing that the defendants are innocent, but somebody's got to plead guilty here so we can plead guilty while protesting our innocence and be on our way. And then they have their man. Yeah, it's absolutely fucking insane. It's insane. But yes. if obviously, um, I imagine someone, if we did get it wrong, will correct us. No, <laughs> we'll take it. that, honestly, because it's one of those things that I don't fucking understand it. No, it's I think not it, you to did be it, under- you understand it. So if somebody could explain it better, sure, and we'll acknowledge it. That's it the best literally I could come is up not with. to be understood. Yeah. This just maintains the state of Arkansas has never put anyone on death row that was innocent, never even imprisoned anyone that was innocent. They maintain their innocence, but the state can maintain their guilt. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And it is well, then- a total... The the amount of yoga you have to use in your mind to make this a plausible thing. Well, there was a precedent. I mean, this all ca- this went back to a case from I think nineteen sixty four when B- Batman sued Alfred. I think. <laughs> yes, I remember that. He said he touched me in the suit, and he said it doesn't count because I couldn't feel it feel it through the Kevlar. But I, I knew he was doing it. But uh, you know what happened is that I. Uh, but then they also. From what I understand, they can't sue nope. for civil like recursion, so they can't make money back from the state. So in the case of the West Memphis Three, if they were to take the deal, they'd be out of prison that very same day. But the thing was, 
not all three of them were keen to take up the state on its offer. Jesse and Damien, they were all for it because Jesse's like, I don't give a shit what gets me out of prison right. as long as I get out. And Damien's like, I'm going to die if I don't get out of here. So please let me well, out. And I do want a little, little correction. Jesse did request that he could stay in prison long enough to get the, uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> the hands on the clock. The my, hands on the clock. I know, my but, friend, Angel Dennis, he said to me he could get the hands done for just a couple of jerks. Oh. <laughs> you don't need to do it anymore. <laughs> but Jason... He almost sunk the whole deal out of principle. He wanted a new trial because he wanted to show the whole world just how bad Arkansas had fucked up. He wanted to leave prison cleared completely, and he was fully willing to risk dying there to do it. But what eventually convinced him was Damien. If these guys lost this new trial, Jason and Jesse, they just go back to their lives that they've been leading the last 18 years. That those nice little grooves well, that they had, you know, that they had, had formed over the last 18 years, they just well, go back to the that nicest, and say, like, as nice as it can possibly as be. As nice in as hell. it can possibly be in hell. Yeah, they they'd go right back there. It'd suck, but they'd still be alive. Damien wouldn't be. If they lost that new trial, Damien would definitely die in the lethal injection chamber. Mm-hmm. And so To save his friend's life, Jason Baldwin took the deal along with the other two, and the West Memphis Three finally left prison on August 19th, 2011. Oh, and again, God. had the rock stars known it was going to take 15 years, I do wonder <laughs> if they would have uh, been so gung ho on defending them. But what can you imagine that you're you're in cuffs, you're never walking, you can't walk no, it's anywhere. A, it's a, you can I take, have this. It's a nightmare I have all the time. It's yes, a nightmare then, that I, then, uh, I have about being in prison for a crime I didn't commit. But then one day you sign this piece of paper and you're free to you, go. You're gone. It is great. And then you're just in the world. It's the closest thing to being abducted by an alien. Yeah. Because what yeah. the hell? I mean, 2011 compared to what was it? 93, right? 93, yeah. The, the world has changed world. so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, unbelievable. Just try to explain Kid Rock. <laughs> just explain how that got really He's popular. meeting with the president? <laughs> what? <laughs> now, we're not going to go into all the evidence concerning the other suspects in the case. I mean, it would be highly hypocritical for us to do so. Plus, we don't really have the time. Uh, so if you want to hear about all that, like, go watch West of Memphis. You yeah. know, they do a pretty damn good job of laying it all out completely uh but the thing is i mean what really matters here since damien jason and jesse entered an alpha plea this case is closed yeah it's done they technically got their man quote unquote quote unquote it's already done they don't have to continue the investigation i mean even if the real murderer is right under everyone's noses as many people believe he is it doesn't matter because the state of Arkansas has made sure that this case will never again see the inside of a courtroom. As far as they're concerned, the horrific murders of three little boys was answered by locking up three innocent teenagers for 18 years, then setting them free with a shrug. Nobody will ever pay for the deaths of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers in any meaningful way, all because the establishment would not and will not ever admit that they could have been wrong. Happy Ugh. Halloween! <laughs> <laughs> oh my, it is, but it is infuriating. Of, but I would, again, you know what I mean? We, we did a lot of research for this episode. Obviously, there are massive gaps in the whole story. I'm going to say again, we don't know what happened to those boys. 
We mm. know some idea of what could have happened, how they died. We know technically the technical reasons how they died. We don't know how they ended up there. We don't, we don't know what's happened. So, yes, you can believe that any one of the various suspects, whether it is the, any named of peripheral people or even Damien, Jason, and Jesse, that they are guilty. You can believe this, but a part of it is that that is a story you're telling yourself. That's a story you're piecing together with the evidence that is put in front of you, which is what those lawyers did to convince that jury that those three were guilty in the first place. I would submit to you to read The Devil's Knot again, because there's stuff that we left out because it's very, very difficult. You would fall asleep while driving if you listen <laughs> well, to it, because it would, yeah. just be yeah. an audio re- it would just be an audio recording of the book. Yeah, well, yeah and it's like- interesting. The, the author of Devil's Knot, initially, a lot of the people that were friends with her were like, why would you even do this? Like, yeah. they're guilty. And she went in with a very open mind, and that's why I think that book is so trusted. Yeah, and, and you know, and the, we left out so much stuff. We left out all of the jury misconduct stuff, of which there is quite a bit like oh, there's a- there's a lot of stuff that we like because yeah we want you to go read the book we always want you to go and like support the authors that do like such fantastic work that you know makes makes this show possible but also a part of it is i i am in the now in the bill cooper style right you should read and obviously decide for yourself but i would say to you if you read the devil's not and you look at that book and you look at all the other evidence you could see that if uh, i i mean i would postulate if they didn't do it, somebody did, and it's it's just a fucked right. up tragedy because those little kids will never get uh, justice. Yep, and those are the, those three children are uh, real victims and, here. And, and now uh, we're in the post truth kind of horrible society where this kind of idea that you are going to go like now everything is revisionist upon revisionist upon revisionist. So now everybody's saying, well, it's like a, a whole new school of people re saying that West Memphis three are guilty, mainly just because you just wouldn't even just be- you don't even trust that you're not on a disc flying through space. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like if we're at this level of not I think trusting just anything, a flat earther argument. I'm saying it, I'm, it's the opposite. It's the the that people are like, you can convince yourself of anything if you decide that you are correct, and it's important to remember. Of course, it's a fun contrarian thing to say. Like, no, I think the, actually I think the West Memphis Three are guilty. Yeah, like, it's a yeah, it's just a it's a fun contrarian thing to say it's because like, there's you know a lot of the evidence like you can go through and you can say like oh, this is bullshit and that's bullshit. No, the logic doesn't work there. Uh, I mean, they do the exact same thing that we just did. You know, it's right. just on the just other flipped. side. Yeah, just, just flip. Yeah, so they, just, the whole- they just they just flip it. I mean, people are going to be arguing about the West Memphis Three until the fucking sun goes right. out. Like, it's- were, were there three Son of Sam's? All these things. Oh, are all, there's so many things. All anyway, this shit. wonderful episodes. <laughs> uh, criminal justice reform just, has like, to happen. I just- it's um, just murky ass fucking waters, man. Yeah. And it's so like once we're wading in them, it's important to remember that that's what we've decided to do. Once you're in murky waters, you're a fucking frog. Ugh, that was just like us. a bathtub from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with the lawyer hanging out in it. And also, I want to thank uh, research assistant Rachel Shu for yeah. her wonderful work on this. And another thanks to uh, Carolina for helping me out with all the uh, false confession work on episode two. Escuela Sandre. <laughs> Oh now my god! On, now you're doing it on purpose. <laughs> no, that, I, I actually Honestly, thought that, that was he right. really thought he had it. He <laughs> really I thought it. he nailed it. That's why I was no, so not, confident. Not Sandre, Sangre. Sangre. Blood school. Blood school. A Sangre. Yay! Thank you. Good enough. Good. Um, it's great. <laughs> I want to okay. do a couple of thank yous because I have them here in front of me. I want to thank right. Matt Vergus or Virgus. I believe it is Vergus. He gave me an absolutely beautiful carved Ouija board that I'm going to be putting up in the office. 
Travis, which is fucking killer as shit. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to take a picture and put it on the goddamn Instagram. And also, Tarek and Caleb from the band Intercourse sent me a pretty bre- a fucking badass-looking album and an nice. alien shirt that I'm excited to wear. And I haven't listened to the album yet, so I'm certain it's good. And All I, right. And I would like to read a, a short piece of fan mail that I got in the, uh, that I got in the mail. Okay. Good. Marcus Parks. Thanks for all the hard work you put into last podcast on the left. It's amazing. My partner and I also enjoy pickle dinners, so we stand by you. Do you also drink all the brine? My partner does, then gets horrible diarrhea. But he loves pickles so much, he does it anyway. Hale Gein, Finn Porter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. If we're going to do that, I got an Instagram message from it. It's cat underscore one. Um, And there's more, but I don't want to blast him on Instagram. But he's talking about how they grew up. He's a Hispanic male, grew up in L.A. And how he has introduced the uh, podcast to his children to broaden their horizons a little bit. Oh, wonderful. uh, All those those good things are uh, why we do it. So thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you to the the woman who sent an email to us uh, through our Patreon uh, that said that she used last podcast as a way to connect to her to her teenage son who was going through a real hard time right. it was a very uh, very heartfelt email and we really i mean we really appreciate each and every one of you at, uh, listening to us and you know all just all this shit so it's always overwhelming every week when we think about it it's just so fucking cool that this is what we get sweet, to do thank sweet you satan offers so many gifts and it's the halloween it's a halloween season i feel generous i feel <laughs> i feel <laughs> like strong this is the time when i'm my most engorged uh, well, uh, you actually, yeah, you do look engorged. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, and, and to our, yes, have a great Halloween. We love you all very much. Hail yourselves. Oh, wait, wait no. We got other shit to, gotta talk yeah, to. Yeah, we got First a whole bunch of other shit to do. Yeah, we got to talk about live shit? shows. We got to talk oh, about we're doing, Oh, live shows. <laughs> yeah, dude, we're going to be going. We're doing a big tour in November. Uh, we're going to Dallas. We're going to Austin. We're going to Oklahoma City. All right. Uh, that's going to be on uh, November 7th, 8th. And ninth, seventh in Dallas, eighth in Austin, ninth in Oklahoma City. Uh, all of those uh, tickets are available over on lastpodcastontheleft.com. Yeah. And we're going to be coming in uh, late November and early December. We're going to be coming to Indianapolis, coming back to Indy. All right. Uh, that's going to be at the end of November. I think that's the 30th. Uh, and then we're going to be uh, in Chicago taping our live show. And that, that one's wait. sold out. So thanks, everyone, so much uh, for cu- for buying tickets to that one. Uh, but And I think Austin might be sold out as well but we still got tickets for dallas oklahoma city and indianapolis but pick those up soon because hey if the the past is is any indication mm-hmm. then those are going to sell out as well can we slowly drive past the flaming lips house in okc so i can say big fan of your work sir <laughs> i'm on a first name i'm in a first name basis with wayne oh he likes some of my instagram posts that's very, that's sweet. very nice oh, wayne coin bulk of the series bulk of the series bulk of the series <laughs> I mean, they, they're um, the best. and so you can follow last podcast on the left and all of the bullshits that are grinding us towards the grave at LP on the left. Make sure next week, side stories, we got the one and only Dog Meat. No, it's going to be joining us yeah. for some eh, so creepy, so creepy stories again. The listener pasta is going to be very premium this year. We have several hundred submissions. Great. We're pouring through them. We're going to make some selections. Um, it's going to be fucking awesome. Halloween's coming, and next week, I think you'll actually be surprised by our episode. It's sort of like a, a reaction to this story. Yeah, a okay. bit of a continuation, you know? Yeah, it's oh. it's not necessarily a continuation, but, you know, it's uh, 
take a look at the other side. We're going to have bit. Jerry Driver on. And, um, <laughs> uh, all right, getting, him, getting him up out of his easy chair. Yeah, he's right. putting on a shirt. <laughs> he's coming to Brooklyn, New York. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know that that's the sound that he makes everywhere he goes. All right, everyone. We love you. Thanks so much for listening. Hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Hail Gein. Magustalations. Hail me. And... Happy Halloween! And congratulations again on the marriage, Henry. Cool. <laughs> it's possible for anyone. <laughs> See you, fuckers. <laughs>